You are the product of millions of years of evolution, and here you are listening to Seriously Wrong, a biological imperative. It was destined to be so in your genes. Humans love podcasts, and you specifically love Seriously Wrong podcasts. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, they evolved for this. Yeah. No, I, I bet actually... their ancestors were listening to a type of proto seriously wrong podcasts no, in the past like yeah. their friends were having t these types of conversations you think i'm joking no there was a time in ancient pre-human history now we don't know if we were bald monkeys with little tails at this point or if we were fully developed humanoids but at some point we strongly theorized that there were proto-humans sitting around where listening to a seriously wrong type performance was a evolutionary strategy that caused them to survive. And so our psychology shaped around the demand, the thirst, the hunger, the craving for listening to seriously wrong, because yeah. there were times in history where not listening to seriously wrong would cause you to be killed. Yeah. And it's adaptive. It's true. It's science. And the way that we know that it's true is that we surveyed a whole bunch of our listeners, first of all, and we said, do you like listening to Seriously Wrong? Right. And almost all no, of them we said found. yes. Yeah. And uh, there was a few hate listeners in there, but for mm -hmm. the most part, they said yes. Some so we said, said, okay, this is, this is a psychological truth about this group of people. And that's consistent with our listeners in countries all over the world. And we know behaviors... Like anything else are evolved, are you saying that the brain isn't part of evolution? Are you saying that people's psychology has nothing to do with our evolutionary history? Oh, so human no, psychology was so. If we observe a, a behavior a or something? in a survey of a select group of people, then we know that it's evolutionary, especially if we can come up with a good kind of explanation for why that might have happened. And uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory why the types of playful talking and ideas that are in this episode would have led a survival advantage to people who listened to it in the past. So. so evolutionarily, welcome to Seriously Wrong, and biologically, thank you for being here. And I mean, technically, biologically speaking, if you want to support the show, you can go to Seriously Wrong on Patreon, patreon.com slash Seriously Wrong. You can sign up for bonus episodes, access to our Discord server, and, and so on. Increase your fitness for future generations and the fitness of your genes throughout history going forward from now, future history, by subscribing to Seriously Wrong on Patreon. This episode of the Seriously Wrong podcast is brought to you by The Imaginary Evolution of the Hypothetical Psychology. Hi, I'm a scientist, and I want you to imagine a hypothetical psychological feature that some people maybe have, and then imagine that instead of that being cultural, it's actually hard-coded and genetic. And then I want you to imagine an imaginary scenario where that hard-coded genetic feature might have evolved. And then imagine that you've just discovered proof 
for a deep-rooted biological trait of all of humanity. I call it the imaginary evolution of the hypothetical psychology, and it is a fact, like chemistry. Wow, that's the most amazing scientific theory I've ever heard. Here, have a Science Genius Award for outstanding contributions to human knowledge. You're a special person. We need to broadcast this around the world. Sir, you are so brave for offering this young theorist an award. In this climate, I'd like to honor your contribution to science award giving with a statue honoring your towering intellect and bravery in the town square. Hi, I'm here from the big genius world changing common sense awards and the division that deals with people who are unfairly being persecuted for their true beliefs. I'd like to offer you all a full suite of awards, both to the original genius and everyone who gave an award all the way down the chain, including myself, who I will give myself an award. Venture capitalist here. I'm hearing all this and I'm seeing dollar signs. And I want to invite all of you award winners and award givers to come work in my company that wants to change the world using this brilliant theory. Can I write you all a check for $10 million to get started today? In other news, hypothetical imaginary mania has taken over the nation, with books about the static character of evolutionary humankind flying off the shelves so fast it's causing casualties at the malls. Now that's natural selection. Experts say this imaginary and hypothetical theory is so profoundly true, it's going to usher in a new golden age of dating, where everyone understands each other ever more perfectly forever, in perfect harmony. Hello, Mr. President. We've found a theory with profound national security implications. Imagine, hypothetically, there was an imaginary- I've, I've already heard it from the DOD and the Pentagon. We're changing our whole strategy to better reflect the inherent static nature of mankind through evolution, but thank you. Jimmy is a beta male. Sally, you're just a six. Ew. In each environment, you'd be dead because you're weak. That's what nature wants. <laughs> Oh, so great to see kids engage with the curriculum and assessing the quality of each other's genes. And this bullying shall separate the wheat from the chaff, methinks. I love being a kindergarten teacher with vulnerable students. It is so rewarding. Biologically, I have to fire Well, son, it sounds like you are lower status than Think her. of it like if we were in the, the jungle. The thing you gotta understand about these girls is they're like a different species. I can't date you. I'm a seven. I mean, what are you gonna do about it? I'm not saying it's right, but I, it, it is biological. I'm yeah. gonna get in trouble for saying this, but... Gotta obey your genes. I'm sorry, but I evolved to treat you that way. Sometimes and I'm, I'm getting blamed for that now. I'm sorry, but no. Stone age. Well, it's actually an adaptation. And I'm not saying it's right. Eugenics? But no, just nothing to do with the imaginary evolution of the hypothetical psychology. A brand new scientific fact with profound implications across all of society and history. And proud sponsor of today's episode of Seriously Wrong. So, hey, hello, and what's up? Uh, welcome to Seriously Wrong. We are your humble hosts, Sean and Aaron, and we're talking this week about evolutionary psychology, this social phenomenon that's associated with a base of some scientific work, uh, some, some... Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, but what we're talking about really isn't 
strictly the science. There's something wider going on with the way that evolutionary psychology is talked about and utilized in common sense, popular culture, the sort of pop evo psych. I think the science, from everything I've read, it's got some pretty serious problems. But the social effects of this body of work is far worse than just making some scientific mistakes or making inferences from data that are maybe too big of a jump. Yeah, it's a field that is like taking the idea that I think most people can agree on, which is that there's a real interrelation between human evolutionary history and human behavior and human psychology. I think that's like a general thing that most people would probably agree on. Maybe if you're like a creationist or I don't know, a Lysenkoist or some like parody of a blank slate person who thinks there's literally nothing in our behavior at all that comes from evolution. We, everyone agrees with this. And EvoPsych can refer to a few different things. It's like a broad idea, but I feel like at the core of it or at the core of the social phenomenon of it, the political phenomenon of it, there's a Mott and Bailey where you're retreating to this very basic idea of like, oh, so you don't think evolution has any effect on human behavior or psychology? It's what you're retreating to. It's the safe position that is really difficult to attack. Uh, but then when you're not on the defensive, you're out there making all kinds of like really wild statements based on poor evidence that seem more designed to push a particular political agenda than to illuminate anything about our deep psychology or the way evolution has shaped our psychology. Yeah, so it's true that human psychology is to some degree shaped by a trajectory of human evolution that extends into prehistory, pre-humanity, across epochs and time. A long, long, long history led to humans existing in the evolutionary plane, and our psychology can't be anything other than a result of that to some degree in some ways. But the specific claims that are made by EvoPsych, this pop EvoPsych kind of movement, they usually relate to dating and relationships and sex differences. They're usually based on really shoddy data with very large inferences about prehistory that aren't usually based on any sort of actual historic evidence. So like they'll talk to people now and then they'll make a theory of a hypothetical scenario in prehistory that could cause people to quote unquote, you know, evolve a gene for whatever <laughs> preference that people are showing. I don't know. I think like overall, what I run into from both casual Evo Psych fans and also even practicing public speakers who base their public identity on evolutionary psychology is a lot of like bad evidence propping up poorly laundered misogyny. Yeah, there's also some racism, homophobia, and ableism in there, but it really does seem to revolve around the misogyny element. And it, because in evolutionary psychology, a lot of the time they're talking about sexual selection, which is slightly different than natural selection. Natural selection is like, you know, behaviors and things that cause people to die or to be unable to reproduce will not get passed on to future generations by definition. So, you know, if opposable thumbs help people survive better, then the gene for opposable thumbs will spread throughout a population. It's natural selection. Sexual selection is the idea that the decision of who to mate with is another layer of what allows 
genes to be passed on to the next generation. If no one will mate with you, then your genes are also not getting passed on. Um, but through that lens of sexual selection, there comes all this stuff about the strategies that men have to get sex and the strategies that women have to choose between the men trying to have sex. This is the sort of basic dynamic that EvoPsych really hones in on, that men are like these sperm sprinklers who have uh, just, just want to spread their seed as wi wide as possible, and women are selecting between the men. They're the choosy, yes, yes, no, no. Yeah, when, uh, w what kind of resources do you have to help me raise my kid? These are, uh, these are discerning mother hens focused on the development of prime quality eggs and nothing else. It's sometimes people even talk about it as like there's two human species that have evolved in a sort of sparring pose in relation to each other right. across history. And they've got different, yeah, different evolutionary strategies. And like there's a genetic kind of war between the sexes. And from this core dynamic that they imagine, maybe to some extent observe, I don't know, we can get into some of the research on some of these things. Then from there, you can justify all these ideas about how men and women have very different behavioral basis. They're like, men have evolved to be, you know, stronger, faster, more dominant. Uh, they're into math. They're universally attracted to like young women. They have very specific waist to hip ratios that they're into. Uh, whereas women, on the other hand, were evolved to be weaker, slower, pregnant, submissive, concerned less with looks and youth and beauty and more kind of money hungry, looking for cash and resources. Uh, and they're better at being moms and babying. And, you know, a woman's place is at home taking care of the kids. Now, they'll say this is just science. Because this is how it is doesn't mean that we endorse this or say that this is how it should be. We're just describing how it is as a science. Right, right. Yeah. We're not saying women should be at home in the kitchen taking care of the kids. We're saying that biologically, evolutionarily, it's just a fact that they want to be at home taking care of the kids. Even if we say we're just trying to understand how things are and we're not advocating that what is natural is good, there is kind of a dangerous... Like we all know that people kind of think that what is natural is good. Like even when they say that they don't think that, a lot of people th really think that what is natural is good. Like if you say it's natural, the implication is even if you're a high-minded person who understands that what's natural is not necessarily good. If someone's like, oh, it's only natural, that means it's fine. Don't worry about it. Or this is natural ice cream. It's like, oh, that's great. So much better than that unnatural ice cream from your competitors. Like natural is coded to mean good in the vocabulary of our society. Yeah. And like when you're saying something's adaptive, like that just sounds good. Like, oh, this helps you survive. This is an adaptive trait. These are all intuition pumps for like good things. And if you want to say these are bad things that are adaptive in some way evolutionarily, but we shouldn't do them, you have to be really explicit about that, like kind of all the time. They do say that as a caveat occasionally when they're being challenged, but it's not threaded through what they're saying. You see the way that it ends up getting deployed by these influencers and pickup artists and stuff where they'll be like, oh, well, biologically men are like this. It's natural for men to feel this way. And it's just being used to obviously justify political ideas about the subordination of women to men and to 
in some cases, blame them for their position in patriarchal society through this naturalistic, it facts, not feelings kind of lens. As Jordan Peterson says in his book, the patriarchy isn't some contingent social institution. It's a deep, biologically, evolutionarily rooted sort of bargain that's been struck between men and women with these competing interests that they have. They, they landed on patriarchy as the best way to navigate this situation. Yeah, and once you start to see that that's what it's doing, justifying patriarchy, it starts to become clear that evolutionary psychology is part of this sort of tradition we've talked about before in various episodes of using scientific or pseudoscientific language, often specifically around evolution, as a way to justify various hierarchies. Yeah, it's sometimes called scientism is like the using of the reputation of science to carry water for political ideas and narratives. I think, yeah, we've talked about in a few other episodes about eugenics and pseudoscientific racism and their connections to social Darwinism. There was kind of like this first wave of pseudoscientific hierarchical ideology starting in the late 1800s. It sort of peters out and collapses following Adolf Hitler becoming this popular figure, uh, eugenics becoming discredited in light of that. And generally, like social Darwinism falling out of vogue because it's associated with, you know, the epitome of evil. But then there's this kind of second wave in the following decades that, in a similar way to social Darwinism, was sort of pulling on pre existing prejudices, old biases, giving them a veneer of scientific coat, and then repackaging them and selling them to the public. This is kind of the sociobiology era. Sociobiology is like a precursor to modern evolutionary psychology. Yeah, they're very much in continuum with one another. Something that really starts in the sociobiology era is this fixation on the most extreme and upsetting material stuff like the evolutionary benefits of infanticide, uh, the evolutionary benefits of rape, the evolutionary benefits of genocide, that sort of stuff. This like debate bro thought experiment kind of <laughs> ass politics. And it gets a lot better at covering its tracks in some ways. It's not as explicitly outwardly racist. It'll often sort of double back or second guess itself. Like there's a lot of like sociobiology didn't say that kind of vibe. Right. So it's like, oh, I propose there's an evolutionary benefit to infanticide. It's adaptive. And you're like, wait, are you saying infanticide is good? And it's like, no, 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 I would never say that. And what are you, are you saying our behavior has nothing to do with evolution? One of the things that EvoPsych retains from the first wave of using the language of evolution to reassert and politically organize around pre-existing prejudices and hierarchical structures, one of the things that EvoPsych retains from that is this focus on conflict as like the driver of nature. And in the kind of era of sociobiology, like the selfish gene by Richard Dawkins is like the preeminent example of this, this idea of like that the world is not just a competition between different species or a competition of members of the species against each other. It's even a competition down at the genetic level, like a competition between genes that want to preserve themselves at the expense of other genes, a tendency towards genetic determinism that is believing that like genes encode fate to a degree and that there is an immutability on top of that uh, de-emphasization of culture and knowledge failing to recognize that some of the ways that people act are contingent and not based on some hardwired deep thing 
So Evo Psych takes this idea of the competition of nature, the competition of genes, and it applies it also, especially to the competition between men and women, who are these antagonistic evolutionary opposites. Now it's time for another episode of the So Open Bro Jogan Experience, where free thinkers are awoken and speech is always free spoken or else you might get your nose broken. And on that token, today's episode, we invite the eminent professor, academic, researcher, author, genius, Dr. Evo Psych. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me here, bro. That was a beautiful introduction. I really appreciate that. Well, you deserve it. I have been an admirer and follower of your work now for years. Uh, when I first saw you doing interviews for your book a few years ago, I thought, wow, that guy's right on the money. He's got it. And your new book has just come out. is called Big Bazongas But Not Your Wife, An Evolutionary Theory. Yes, that is correct. I'm glad you bring up my earlier book because it's foundational to understanding this one. But yes, Big Bazongas That Aren't Your Wife Theory, this is a serious evolutionary theory that we've been testing. We've been trying to understand what is it about men, evolutionarily speaking, that causes when they're with their wife and they see big bazongas that aren't their wife and they're kind mm. of their eyes shoot out of their head like boing and then a tongue comes out of their mouth and rolls right. out blah, 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 and they're like blah, and they're like like why are men like this they're like blah, look at that and they're like blah. now is yelling a wooga a wooga a part of this yes yeah, so that's an adapted trait and th when the eyes pop out of the head it's sort of like in a sort of like hubba hubba yeah do that... they ever get sort of vaguely heart-shaped Sometimes they do, yes. Well, this matches um, my common sense, so. We find in the cases when the eyes get heart-shaped, those are the issues that have the most significant domestic incidents with the wife because right. it, it appears to not just be about lust, which women are evolutionarily conditioned to anticipate and expect to be kind of universal from men as the cum sprayers that they are. But the heart can actually be a sign that there's something more going on, a romantic connection potentially wanting to be formed there. So that can be upsetting to the house. So often as the evolutionary strategy, you know, men and women are kind of at war at this and women will sometimes grab his eyes and be like, Roger, what are you doing? You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and yeah, that's her way of protecting her family and, and, and her brood and her womb and so on. Uh, so am I right in assuming that women being the l sort of less visual uh, sexually of the two species to, uh, subtypes of the human species don't have this capacity. Their eyes never can expand outside their head. No. Uh, they never sort of say a wooga or hubba hubba. Not or... the organic awooga that you see in male populations. Right. It's sort of an imitative pretending awooga with no exactly. actual eye popping. No, the capacity, frankly, hasn't been evolved. And we theorize so... that this, this kind of awooga demonstration, it's a way of helping communicate to other males where reproductive availability is, um, ah, especially right. brothers. Yeah, because you might want to, if you can't, then at least your brother might. Then, right. And yeah. in the sort of bitter tooth and claw war of all against all between man and wife, it demonstrates to her that she's disposable. Mm. So to be fair to the critics of your theory, I've been trying to understand, like this seems obviously true. I've been trying to understand where the criticisms come from. Right. And well, good luck. The major one that I could identify is people saying, what about men who prefer small bazongas or maybe just prefer their wife's bazongas? You know what, bro? Just can, can we not do that question? Can you not? Well, this is live, going out live, but we can move yeah, on. Yeah, let's not ask that question again, okay? That has nothing oh, yeah. to do with my theory. Okay. No, I just, 
it seemed like right that has nothing to do with my theory though so i'm not sure why we'd ask that question i'm taking time out of my day to be here do you want to move on yeah sorry i just i didn't mean to offend we don't you. ask questions like that why don't you tell us about your initial book sort of the basis for the second book as you said right um my first book is called fishnets a people's history of the oldest profession and well basically we've the theory which has now been I'd say more or less accepted, at least you talk to your average person, they've heard of it, is that the reason fishnet stockings are so attractive is because it actually used to be an evolutionary adaptation that men would catch women in nets. So the women who were caught in nets would be more likely to reproduce. Mm, and right. uh, they found a way to replicate that evolutionary preference, which is still encoded in the minds of the man who have a net trapping sort of sexual instinct that was evolved. That so matches my experience because, yeah, fishnets are, yeah, very attractive. No, we, and it makes evolutionary sense that we polled college students and 52% of men find well, that's more than half fishnets moderately attractive or very attractive. So I think, yeah, I mean, what more evidence do you need that that is uh, an evolutionary adaptation? Yeah. So we, we, we sort of explore that in Flintstone's time. What does that look like with nets? And then, yeah, it's a classic book. It was actually one book of the year. Right, yeah. And the only uh, sort of objection I found to this, which I guess you kind of answered with the last one, so maybe I don't even need to throw it out there, maybe, but it was yeah. just kind of what, what about the men who don't like fishnet stockings? Or what about the lack of evidence that men ever caught women in nets in history? Yeah, there's people who don't like this sort of research. They'll do anything oh, to stop it. they have a bias it. against it, and they're there just is coming a bias, for yeah. it, right? People come, people, people interrupt, I do book. They triggered... <laughs> Yeah, perhaps. Triggered. Yeah. Yes, actually, we've studied that, and yes, they are. Well, that matches my experience as well, because who you try to say one thing about this stuff online, and all of a sudden you're a Nazi, you're a eugenicist, you're they're coming after you and your children, and they want to murder you all for saying these things. So. That's it's an evolutionary adaptation, frankly. I mean, sorry, that's an evolutionary maladaptation. Uh, mm, that sort of behavior right. is a dead end of evolution. Their descendants uh, will be punished for that if they exist at all. Is there something to be said about the idea that too many participation trophies these days is causing this type of behavior and causing a sort of mal-genetic adaptation of our psychology over time? Absolutely. No, if you can imagine in Flintstones times, there's almost no trophies being handed out. Right. You and have you to work imagine not a lot of resources. The few trophies they did hand out are not going to be for participation. They're going to be for winning something. No, that's absolutely right. If you imagine sort of hypothetically, the trophy was a rare experience. It wasn't something that was given out every day just for participating. And yeah, I get attacked for saying that, but I said, just show me your data. Show me the data that shows that participation trophies were part of the evolutionary environment that gave rise to humankind. I'm still waiting because that's one of the things that we do know about that environment is they didn't have participation trophies. And that's right. the sort of thing you can theorize around. Now we see it's sort of a different picture. And I find that disturbing. And as a scientist, you have to speak out about that kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe we should think a little bit deeper about what we're messing with, evolutionarily speaking, when we just start handing out these trophies willy-nilly. That's no, what I've always thought. Biologically, it's so. impossible to get a participation trophy. Right. Because yeah. trophies are for winning in nature. It's just another lie of modern society. It's dysgenic. It's something that we need to control with like a powerful leader who can guide human evolution. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing all this research. I feel like I've just been bombarded with facts and evidence and logic. 
You're such an eminent, prestigious, Thank intellectual, psycho. And no, I am. The thing I love about the type of science you do is that it's not just science. It's also useful too. It's also, you can take that home right. uh, into your relationships and figure out how to treat each other. Hey, if you want to entice me to bed uh, because I'm busy looking at someone else's bazongas, maybe wear some fishnets. That's what a man might hypothetically say to his wife. Right. No, I mean, the scientific basis of these things it's not disputed by anyone serious. It's the, the criticisms that you get. I mean, scientifically, it's trite. I'm actually working on a book about the evolutionary side to misogyny as a cultural strategy. Right. Not saying that it, misogyny is good, but that no, it might have been an evolutionary not. benefit. Right. Uh, right. And I specify that every once in a while. Well, we will be so happy to have you back on when that book is published to talk about your theories more in depth. I would love to. Well, thank you so much, bro. Yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Evo Psych. We now go to Frontiers of Evolutionary Psychology. All right. So I think it's time that we dig into some of the evidence. We've made a lot of broad claims about EvoPsych, but let's let's pick a claim, dig down into it, and see what the evidence for it is. One of the key claims that EvoPsych people make is that women prefer high-status men and that they are mostly looking for status and not for good looks when finding a mate. So, of course, that begs the question of what exactly does high status mean? And from what I can tell, Evo Psych people generally break this down into two different subcategories, one of which is dominance and one of which is high socioeconomic status. So we'll look at the question of dominance first. By examining one of the foundational studies purporting to prove that women prefer dominant men, published in April 1987 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. It's called Dominance and Heterosexual Attraction. And so to find out whether women prefer dominant men, whether all women, because of our evolutionary history, are more likely to at least prefer dominant men, we round up 86 female undergraduates at our university and present them with a description of two different men. They shall be our Wilmas today, our experimental <laughs> group of Wilmas. 86 Wilmas, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sourced from a local college campus. The, the prehistoric woman, woman's mind shall be laid bare for us here. So these two men are described, they're both named John, or maybe I should say Fred for this example. They are both described as being tennis players who've been playing for one year and have limited training, but they're very good at it. So and and they've won a similar. They both won sixty percent of matches. Uh, they're they're both described as being very good at tennis. That's the first thing you know about them. The first half of the paragraph is the same in both cases. These are the fictional guys that the the experimental Wilmas are being exposed to. Yeah, you're a female undergraduate. I keep using that phrase because that's what it said. That you're a female undergraduate and you are called into the research thing. 
you're rating these men on sexual attractiveness. Asking uh, all the Wilmers about these experimental threads. <laughs> so where these descriptions diverge is that the first John is described as extremely competitive, refusing to yield against opponents who have been playing for much longer. All of his movements tend to communicate dominance and authority. He tends to psychologically dominate his opponents, forcing them off their game and into mental mistakes. So that's a John number one. Yeah, it was a... <laughs> He sounds like a real... Uh, he's just owning people out there on the tennis he's court. He's a dominator? He's, like, he's psychologically dominating them? He's <laughs> out there on the tennis Me, court, yeah. not just having tennis skills, but yeah, psychologically dominating each other. Wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me he <laughs> yields. Oh, he doesn't yield? Holy <laughs> shit. This is John number two. He's not particular competitive and tends to yield to opponents... <laughs> who have been playing tennis for much longer. He's easily thrown off his game by opponents who play with great authority. Strong opponents are able to psychologically dominate him, sometimes forcing him off his game. He enjoys the game of tennis, but avoids highly competitive situations. Uh, so they ask women on a seven-point scale. On average, these women rated John the Dominant of 4.56, and John the non-dominant as 3.49, so almost a full point lower on a seven-point scale. Right. Um, Devastating. <laughs> Devastating to the yielding men out there. <laughs> yeah, I, like that's the first thing that strikes me is like I feel like it's such a goofy example because you don't know anything else about these people other than like they're both good at tennis, but one is seems more impressive than the other one and like tennis is a competitive sport where you're trying to win yielding isn't some neutral act on the tennis court it means you're losing the game so you're putting them in a situation where they're losing the game and there's things in the description that also like hint at this that he's worse at tennis like he's thrown off his game by opponents with a commanding presence or whatever like that why don't you describe someone who yields a lot sort of psychologically but still manages to stay calm and cool and collected during the game uh, while yielding at the same time there's a lot of like loaded implication into how bad this guy is at tennis which like is the only thing we know about him other than that he yields all the time i don't think there's not very many people who yield so much that that's in their like one <laughs> their paragraph bio, bio. <laughs> just, like, it oh, makes yeah, it seem like yielder. he yields he a lot he's not just a, it's not just like I'm trying to think, like, would I ever yield? Like, am I, am I unattractive <laughs> from too much yielding? And I was, <laughs> and I was like, what, how, what context do you yield to a more experienced player? Like, if they're like, the rules say this, and they're more experienced than me, like, yeah, I'm going to yield if they know. Yeah, yeah, what is yield? Should... Yeah, it, it is weird, because, like, does that mean he just doesn't try? But why does he still win 60% then? I don't know. More experienced players, I let them beat me, because I'm just too nervous to have conflict even with that it was only a one point rating on a seven point scale difference it's not like he like non-dominant guy got like one and the other guy got seven and it was just like women like yes this is how women are they preferred the dominant guy it's like no they both scored like basically in the middle i think what people really like in other people is like people who treat them well that they can imagine spending a lot of time with i think that's like probably one of the most attractive features right but yeah, these these two paragraphs don't let you know anything about that, really. Yeah, I would love to see that too. Two tennis players, one who is very attentive to his partners, cares about what they have to say and so on, and someone who where it's just not mentioned if there's a gap there. Right. 
And it's like such a loaded question too, because you could just as easily pick examples where being someone who psychologically dominates other people wouldn't be a desirable trait. Like John regularly attends PTA meetings at his child's school. He regularly tries to psychologically dominate the other parents and teachers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a tennis match is competitive, but he's been... Yeah, you're trying to beat the other person. That's like rules of the game. Right. No, I bet you a survey would show that people like people who are competitive in games and sports, but won't like them if they're competitive at like, I don't know. Um, John goes to marriage counseling and tries to psychologically dominate his wife and the therapist. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> And then the capper on this is some other people did follow-up research where they added in a third description, which is the same thing, but only the first half of the paragraph. So just he's good at tennis, he wins the same amount as the other guys, and then there's just no description at all dominant about whether he's, how dominant or yielding he is. Um, and when this test was run, they found that, yes, again, there was a very slight preference for John the dominant, although it was much smaller in this study, it was just a tiny 0.2 difference on the seven point scale. Uh, but then John the control, John with less description, beat both of the other two. He was the most preferred John, the one where you got no idea how dominant or not he is, just that he's good at tennis. It's uh, so interesting. It really matches my intuitive sense that being either dominant or submissive is unattractive to me. Right. Like yeah. they're both sound so extreme and it's like, can't you just be normal? normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. It's just forcing it into this false binary of like a hierarchical competition. Uh, and like, yeah, most people I think would probably just be like, Oh yeah, I prefer the person who doesn't see the world that way. New study finds that people, well, when dating, are looking for someone who is normal and not weird about things. <laughs> uh, nice to meet you. Oh yeah, I'm Chris. I'm I'm very submissive and all. I'm sort of a yielding guy, but I, uh, <laughs> I love tennis. Yeah, uh, and I guess like evolutionarily, the theory is that like the person who's dominating on the tennis field would also dominate in like fist fights for meat or. Fist fights yeah, for the, mating the, privileges. Fist, or... fist fights for meat was like a major evolutionary force on us. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of fist fights for meat. <laughs> uh, and women carry that knowledge with them today, you know? Yeah, and, they're, and... They're, yeah absolutely. And that was Frontiers of Evolutionary Psychology. So the primary base of evidence of evolutionary psychology, you find a lot of small effect sizes, a lack of cross-cultural controls, or when cross-cultural controls are done, they're done very poorly or they find weak results. But there's another component piece to this process that is just as flawed or more flawed uh, than that sort of base of evidence, which is the speculation about the evolutionary mechanisms where you can kind of just imagine up this evolutionary environment. And they usually set it as a sort of Stone Age environment, like early humanity. Uh, and there's this presumption of a sort of stable human social environment where things were basically the same this whole time. And the details of what human life looked like during that period are sort of imagined up 
you know, like philosophers when they're like imagining a quote unquote state of nature that humans started from, you just kind of like make up whatever shit you want to make your philosophical point. Yeah. And that's what a pattern grid world with loincloths and clubs. Yeah. And, th- and that's what evolutionary psychologists do a lot of the time. Like one of the big criticisms of evolutionary psychology is that they don't onboard the evidence from anthropology, archaeology, all these other fields that actually like try to study the variation in human culture and human environments throughout history and like how we actually haven't had a sort of single stable evolutionary environment where men and women were all doing these same things all the time. Yeah, there's routinely like weird logical errors made when people are talking about this hypothetical period of evolutionary, this evolutionary boom, the Stone Age brain in the modern body kind of idea. One of the weird ideas that goes into that is like the features that form our cumulative wholeness of like the human brain, body, etc. is a result of like a really, really long period of evolution. So like going into this evolutionary Stone Age period that they're talking about, this hypothetical Stone Age period that they're talking about, we're coming into that with a bunch of stuff that's already uh, evolved, for lack of a better term, like you're already anatomically modern humans by this point. Like if you're in the stone ages already, you're at like humans who look like we do. Uh, so yeah, there's this whole evolving into that, that happens beforehand. So I had this quote I wanted to read where Steven Pinker is sort of responding to this idea that we don't know enough about what human social structures looked like during the stone ages in order to make specific claims about human psychological adaptations during that period. Uh, he says that we know that the environment, quote, lacked agriculture, contraception, high-tech medicine, mass media, mass-produced goods, money, police, armies, communities of strangers, and other modern features, which he argues have profound implications for minds that evolved in such an environment. But it's like, that's a list of features that, you know, probably mostly weren't part of our, the term armies, I'm like, yeah, I guess like a large scale army, that would have been impossible. For the most part, I agree that we wouldn't have had those things. But that's not that specific about like how society is actually organized and how men and women relate to one another in these societies, how sex and reproduction and parenting is handled in the society. Like just to say that we don't have agriculture, medicine, mass media, police, money, like that's kind of specific, but there's like such a huge variety of social structures that can be set up that don't have those things. So for the criticism to be presented that like, oh, we don't actually know that our evolutionary like past was like that. And if you look at anthropological evidence, there's a lot of evidence that it's it wasn't, uh, that there was a great variety. And then to answer that, to be like, oh, no, no, we actually do know what it was like. It didn't have these like very specific modern things that are... There was no HDTVs, we know for sure. <laughs> no DVD players, no internet. These things had profound impacts on the society. So basically, we know that it was like the men went out and hunted, women stayed home and picked berries, weaved baskets, uh, took care of the kids. And yeah, that's, that's what it was like, 10,000 years. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to call bullshit first on contraception. I think contraception is something you can really figure out at some... Yeah, I guess he just means the pill and condoms. 
Yeah, but I mean, like, I don't, you can have cultures that only have non-procreative styles of sex, except at certain times, for example. And it's like, right. it like or even like good old pulling out is like, <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's <laughs> relatively effective. Yeah. Um, Monitoring cycles. Lots of like, yeah, means of contraception that could have been figured out in varying societies for sure. When we're talking about like ancient history, when we're talking about like a multi-million year period and stuff, it always occurs to me just like how little it's possible to find from what people were doing. And if you're making like notches in trees or sticks or, you know, there's something that needs to be preserved in order for us to know that it exists. So it's like, coincidentally all the oldest stuff is the stuff that's on the most preservable material like stones and bones and shit it's like yeah they never made anything out of leaves we know because no leaves were ever preserved this whole time just as an example like i just i feel like there's too much that you don't know and like it's probably weirder than you can imagine uh, all the different backs and forth and like yeah no communities of strangers like probably was communities of strangers at different times in history maybe coming and going throughout history yeah, I mean, again, like we can imagine that probably most of the time you were with a small band of people who like everybody kind of knew each other. But we also know that like larger scale gatherings were things that happened and like people moving between different bands and like they would never have just, you know, a few like 10, 20,000 people you have, like, settle a, in an area. Yeah, I, lived, a, I grew up in a city of 50,000 people and you know, you're surrounded by strangers. It's like, it doesn't take that that big of a population to be surrounded by strangers. I mean, like if you have a, an area that produces a lot of abundant, like there's good fishing, there's good hunting and so on, you could have groups that are like cohabitating the same space. Like, I, it just seems weird to me. Like there's a lot of assumptions that are baked into some of these imagined human prehistory kind of things. Like there's all sorts of different ways that people could interact with each other at different times move out on their own, try different things and stuff like that. And we don't actually know that. So like Steven Pinker listed off all these things that we know. And then I just notice as he's talking, several of them, we definitely don't know that like our projections by him. Now, if he means very specifically the modern contraception that we have, right. fine, fair enough. But did it have no impact on human evolution that we are capable of knowing where babies come from and then acting accordingly around it? Like... Right. <laughs> it seems like humans know where babies come from. Like, I wonder when we first figured that out. Was it a couple generations ago or was... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know all the details. They talk about this a little bit in Sex at Dawn, that there are, like, groups of people who had different ideas about it. Like, a lot of people figure it out. Like, I feel like that discovery was probably made and remade in different contexts and different society all over the world over and over again like it's like Imagine yeah maybe like, like there's two, certain groups who <laughs> two primitive pre-human groups you know this is a homo erectus or something and they're meeting each other in a place that they've got a relationship with this other community and they're like hey have you guys figured out where babies come from yet <laughs> we'll trade you the knowledge of where babies come from Barter, Barter Society. We now go to Frontiers of Evolutionary Psychology. All right, time for part two, where we look at some more foundational research proving that women try to date men of high status. 
this time with a focus on socioeconomic status. Yeah, we sorry, that's just weird. We evolved their view is that we evolved a sexual selection mechanism for socioeconomic status. Women did in particular because they're looking for resources for their baby while they're pregnant and infirm or whatever. They need high status signals, high ability to get resources. What's the theorized mechanism in evolutionary history where it was dangerous not to pick for resource status? Is it the assumption that there was sort of like a a private property system where there was like hoarding of resources and scarcity? Or is it like that there's big men and hypothetical ancient tribes that like you want to reproduce with the important guy in your clan so that then your children get more resources yeah i guess more the latter yeah this is where it really starts to fall apart for me because like yeah if you're in a sort of situation where you're in a band of people that are like even if it's like what they think, the men go out and hunt and the women stay back and raise the kids or whatever, that kind of implies that all the men are hunting for the whole tribe and all the women are taking care of all the kids for all the whole tribe. Maybe you're mostly taking care of your own, but yeah, it's hard to imagine there being vast differentials of resources in that context. The only way it kind of makes sense is if you imagine like nuclear families living in caves with like a rock in front of your door and then like your one husband has to go out and like hunt himself. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, I'm home. <laughs> And then, like, yeah, if you have a husband who can't bring home the bacon or whatever, you know, then your family would die. I don't know. It is it is kind of weird. But I, okay, it's new theory. E.O. Wilson watched and loved the Flintstones. <laughs> there really is. It's Flintstoneization of hu- human prehistory. That's part of what's going on here. Yeah. And they're no, like, I, oh, I well, Fred Flintstone was actually very horny, and he would he would go find much younger. Much younger concubines. This study, done by John Townsend and Gary Levy, was published in the Journal of Psychology. It's called The Effects of Potential Partners' Costume and Physical Attractiveness on Sexuality and Partner Selection. So for this study, let's see how many female undergraduates did they find? 112 female undergraduates this That's time. a lot of Wilmas. <laughs> Sounds like they're yabba-dabba doing a better job with the science this time. And they measured a group preferences uh, based on six images. So this had a handsome model and a homely model uh, that had been rated in some other group survey or something. And then each guy was placed into three outfits. One was like a nice collared shirt with a Rolex. One was like a plain white shirt. And then one was a Burger King outfit. So these are meant to bank shot signal socioeconomic status. So on average, the difference between the high socioeconomic status and low socioeconomic status guys in all these groups was about one on a seven point scale again. Right. So there's like a general trend where they found what they wanted, but there's like details in the data that don't quite match. Like medium socioeconomic status guys were preferred for dating over high socioeconomic status uh, in the handsome model. So like it's not true that universally the high socioeconomic status people were the most so, actually out of all the numbers the medium socioeconomic status handsome model had the best score on dating it was a bit different for marriage or just sex or th- they had like different right. categories so the the studied women preferred men in a plain shirt to a business suit if he was attractive 
And weirdly, if he's not attractive, they preferred the guy in the Burger King suit to the guy in the plain white shirt. Although they, <laughs> it was a more straightforward win for the high socioeconomic status for the non-attractive guy. I don't know if like maybe something about being not attractive and just in a plain shirt is somehow worse than Burger King, or maybe it's some weird artifact of this particular study. But the takeaway here is that the differences are very small, very tiny results, easy to kind of pick out from it what you want. That homely and, model just looked damn good in that outfit. <laughs> and the difference between the handsome model and the homely model uh, was like it varied between half a point and two points. So depending on how you kind of crunch the numbers, it might be read as bigger than the difference between high socioeconomic status and low socioeconomic status, which goes against their narrative that women don't care about looks that much. You could just as easily make this a test about women prefer more handsome men to less handsome men and make this about how women always select based on looks and like it just you can pull whatever you want out of these numbers. Yeah. Or if you're a homely man, commit commit to some sort of sense of style. It doesn't matter if it's a Burger King uniform. It doesn't matter if it's a business suit, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, just, just draw attention to the outfit. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what it means. Yeah, it's true. Also but, worth noting that the women in these studies were undergraduates at a university. So that pre-selects for particular socioeconomic status women in the first place doing the selecting like this wasn't a broad survey of all women across society it was female undergraduates and one of the best researched results in this type of thing is that people is homogamy that women and men tend to get together with people of similar socioeconomic status similar age similar like similar across all these varying metrics because it's just the people who are around you in general are the people of similar status to you and whatnot. So yeah, it's possible that there's a preference for high socioeconomic status men in this study because high socioeconomic status women are more likely to be in university. But also evolution doesn't require Mr. Homely to be attractive to everyone. Evolution requires him to be attractive to one person one time. It's an important thing to remember here. Yeah, it doesn't have to be optimized. It just has to be sufficient. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm wild about studying the homely. Yeah, like, Seems like a weird as a, as a category. <laughs> yeah, like how, like how homely is this guy? What's what metric? Can I? I, I don't know. I know. I didn't see the images. I don't know if they're available. Yeah. How, guess, how homely are we talking? <laughs> and, and who's homely too? This is the thing. You know, when we, it's like. It, yeah, when you, you flatten do, beauty or desirability to a single numerical scale like that, and then and like yeah, obviously, if you, even if you asked like a hundred people to rate these men, and like one got like a seven on the attractiveness scale, and one got uh, like a three or whatever, like people probably found the quote unquote homely person attractive, and people found the quote unquote attractive person not attractive. Like general trends don't like categorize you as homely or attractive or whatever like it's they they just gesture at like oh it was based on survey data that women find this man attractive and it's like well no you're saying an average of women found him average more attractive than this like that's not the same thing as he is attractive to women yeah and what if what if he's just one of those people who's like not photogenic they only work from certain angles and the burger king outfit happened to be at that angle like how yeah, right. How balanced and perfect is every aspect of these variables? Anyways, 
I don't think we discovered anything about women today on this survey that isn't better suited by like common sense guesses about what people like, about <laughs> what people are attracted to in each other. But yeah, no, it actually gets better from there. There's more to this I haven't revealed yet. Uh, this study, they actually also surveyed men. And it's really interesting because you would imagine, based on their theory, that men would prefer the women in the Burger King outfit. <laughs> Just imagining like a guy looking at like, oh, look at this this submissive Burger King worker. That's just what I like. Someone with lower socioeconomic status than me. But that's not what they found. They found that men also preferred the high socioeconomic status women generally over the other ones. There was also some weirdness in their data where sometimes the medium was the most preferred in some categories. But in general, it was very similar to the women's data. The attractive model got better scores and the higher socioeconomic status people got better scores. The difference, though, between men and women was that men cared less about it. There was like a, a, a smaller spread on that scale. So it's not just the fact that we're dealing with like an extremely small spread to begin with for women. Also, when we're comparing it to men, the difference between the two spreads is even more microscopic. So the effect of what we're talking about here compared to men is like extremely tiny. And I just, it brings me to this point where I feel like in general, under capitalism, a system where you need money to live, it's going to be attractive for most people to have a partner with a lot of money. Like that's just going to look good. Like, yeah, great. If you bring that to the table, like, of course, I feel, I feel like everyone will be attracted to that. But it also makes sense, just culturally speaking, under capitalism, under patriarchal capitalism, that men would care less about this in a partner slightly more frequently than women very slightly more frequently than women, because there's still a gendered wage gap. There's still more men in positions of high earning. There's still more, even if the men aren't actually earning that much more, they might think that they have the capability to earn more and not be thinking about how beneficial it would be to have a partner. Or, th or they might have cultural ideas where they would feel humiliated if their partner made more money than them. So that could just be, again, a cultural bias and not this... The effect sizes here are extremely tiny, and even those extremely tiny effect sizes have not ruled out cultural causes at all. I think those results not only show that their theory isn't true, but it actually shows that there's something wrong with the question itself. Yeah, no, these are like foundational studies in why women prefer men of high status. This is like, this was the proof at the time that this is true. Oh, that's like really bad proof. That's like surprisingly bad proof. And that was Frontiers of Evolutionary Psychology. Break up text. I'm sorry, your obsession with these pseudoscientific pop interpretations of evolutionary psychology has pushed me to the edge. We gotta break up. You're sexually selecting against me? But I thought we were destined to pass our genes on together. I'm not sexually selecting against you. I am unhappy in a relationship and I am ending it. But I evolved a gene to love you because it's adaptive. 
did did you find someone else with better sperm or what? No, I am just unhappy with the amount of weird, literalizing, pseudoscientific, evolutionary psychology stuff that you bring up all the time. It's all you talk about. You reduce everything we do to our genes. It removes agency from everyone. What, is he taller than me? Does he, is he older than me? Am I not old enough for you? Is it, did you somehow manage to beg an eight? I thought we were happy both being sevens. I'm not cheating on you. There's no one else. I am just unhappy in the relationship based on my subjective experience. There's no strategy about genes here. This has nothing to do with a hypothetical human prehistory that anyone is imagining without sufficient evidence, okay? It's, it, it's just a breakup. It's just two people breaking up. Look, if you don't want to tell me the true reason that you're breaking up with me, I guess that's your right, but could you please at least stop trying to obscure with all this mumbo-jumbo about just not being happy or it has nothing to do with genes or... Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Just say, I'm keeping my evolutionary purpose here a secret. Good day to you. If I had an evolutionary purpose, I would gladly tell you. But when I look inward, there is no evolutionary thing going. It's just I'm just annoyed with the evolution stuff. I'm not selecting against the belief in evolutionary psychology or something. That's not a genetic. You don't have a gene for evolutionary psychology that I'm keeping out of my children. That's, that's a cultural thing I'm selecting for, not a genetic thing. So I guess I have genes to believe the truth, you have genes to believe lies, and you're trying to make your genes outcompete mine. Well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. The truth always wins out, and I bet your children aren't going to be very fit. But that's weird. That's a weird thing to say, to talk about the adaptiveness of my future children. There's like this weird latent eugenic thing going on. And that's part of why I don't like you talking about this stuff all the time. It's like, it normalizes this way of thinking that is so copacetic with some of the most brutal concepts imaginable for like no use. Like even, even if you're trying to make these as a neutral statement, there's no positive benefit. And you're just loading all this weird eugenic like inhumanity into what everyone's doing. And like, even in an evolutionary sense. In any species with culture and shared knowledge, everyone has a larger role to play in evolution than just like the straightforward, you know, A, B passing on of their own genetic information. And that genetic information is diluted after a couple generations. It's basically useless. It doesn't. Okay, it's over. And so our two star-crossed lovers who, to be honest, didn't have that much in common to begin with, and were kind of ignoring a lot of things about the other one that got under their skin right from the beginning, they finally came to a breaking point where one's weird ideological baggage became too much for the other to bear. And these were the breakup texts. I think it's worth picking up on, too, what you mentioned about this being used not just for sexism, but racism and ableism and stuff. Sexism is a unifying thing. Like, there's some evo-psych influencers will get into the pseudoscientific racism stuff, too. But I think some of the other ones know better than to share their feelings on that, even if they believe it's true. Not that all of them do, but... We know that E.O. Wilson did, for example, the guy who wrote the sociobiology book. He didn't write about his racist theories, but he corresponded privately about racist theories and praised the people who put racist scientific theories out there. He praised them privately. 
Yeah, the main really racist academic I can think of is J. Philip Rushton, who basically tried to tie evolutionary history to IQ race pseudoscience stuff that we talked about in IQ. This is a topic I didn't see come up a lot in uh, the Evo Psych stuff I was reading. But yeah, also in terms of other types of biases besides the sexism, it's interesting hearing them talk about homosexuality because in the sort of like basic Evo Psych bro logic, they're like, it makes no sense. Why would that ever happen? Why would somebody want to have sex with someone who's the same sex as them because then they can't reproduce. And the whole point of sex is only reproduction, like from an evolutionary perspective, quote unquote. So they're like trying to, you know, they come up with like, there's like gay uncle theory, like maybe having a gay person in the family helps nieces and nephews survive. There's never been like good evidence for any of this stuff. Gay uncle theory? Is that really the name for it? Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, they, you know, like if you have a, like, it's, it, that makes me think of, they, they of, tie it to the sibling order thing. Like if you have more brothers, like, so they're like, oh, we already have reproducing brothers as the older ones. So younger ones are more likely to be gay. Cause they'll just help out around the house and be a, the gay uncle. When I hear gay uncle theory, it makes me think <laughs> of like, <laughs> it makes me think of someone like leaning someone over at Thanksgiving dinner and being like, when do you think he's going to come out? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, like you have a theory that the uncle's gay and yeah, he's not exactly. telling anyone. Uh, <laughs> but like, it's just as easy to just say like, oh, humans like evolved a capacity to get horny and to find other humans attractive. And it probably would have been like extra work to make sure that it's like so hard coded that like there's only heterosexual, like it just makes sense. There'd be like spillover and it's like you get horny and like find people hot and like it. There's also evolutionary benefit to sex that isn't reproduction in terms of social bonding, um, mutual pleasure and enjoyment. You know, if you're happy with the people you're near, your whole group more likely to survive. You can come up with stuff like that, too. Uh, so the idea that sex is just about reproduction is wrong in the first place. But like, even if it was just the idea that like, oh, yeah, there's like a bit of spillover makes perfect sense. Like there's no need to explain why it would be a specific advantage to be gay, just that it wouldn't be that deeply selected against, especially on like population levels. Yeah. Well, yeah, a, a genetic trait can be passed on, not specifically because it gives some sort of reproductive advantage. Like there's a lot of traits that like, even if they are a genetic trait and not like an interplay of genes and environment, or just, yeah, like a more specific behavioral presentation of a more general trait that's like obvious why it exists, like sex. Yeah, so like traits that are purely genetic can be passed down even when they're not specifically advantageous, as, not, as long as they're not disadvantageous, like for example, you know, removing all of their sperm. And I think in a lot of places, humans evolved, like if they evolved for anything, they evolved to have like a lot of flexibility in the context in which their reproduction happens. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap too with the thing we talked about in the survival of the fittest episode where there's this assumption of like a single type of fitness that everything is like optimizing towards and that there are these like ideal strategies to get your genes to the next generation rather than seeing 
reproduction as like a threshold that animals have to meet in order to continue on genetic line and like a certain amount of reproduction. There's this idea that there's this like constant gamesmanship in, in order to continuously increase and increase as if there's this linear hierarchical progression of like fitness or like strategizing or optimizing for a particular outcome that evolution is like pushing towards. But humans are really flexible and we thrive in many different niches. And if there is one thing that evolution, it seems like evolution has really ingrained in humanity, it is that flexibility. And like, if you look at evolutionary adaptations, one of our actual physiological differences that humans have is a very large prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that inhibits impulses. Uh, and allows us to sort of like stop and think and make decisions. So if there's one thing that it means to really be human, it's that we aren't limited by uh, these sort of like instinctive behaviors that many other species are. And the complexity of our brains also gives us the ability to have very flexible behaviors according to different situations. So the sort of evolutionary psychology idea that we're all constantly have this undercurrent of like pseudo-eugenicist calculators in the back of our head thinking about how to best make sure our genes are the most fit for future generations that we're like scheming under the surface just doesn't really make sense if you look at like the base of human psychology which seems to be flexibility yeah i feel like evo psych doesn't really know what to do with like non-reproductive behavior it always has to like pause it some secret secondary benefit where, you know, every gene in your body, every feature you express, every preference you have is always oriented by this sort of ancient ticking clock towards optimizing and maximizing your gene expression out in the world beyond your own life. And like, whatever your stated preferences are, it doesn't matter. There's a secret underlying force that is so powerful that you're not even aware of it that shapes not just your reproductive behavior and not even just say reproductive behavior in certain windows or something like that, but across your whole life and everything you do, this reproductive selection is drenched in every aspect of it, the music you like and everything. It's all oriented towards sexual selection. Yeah, I don't know. One way I've thought about it is just like, all we needed to evolve is the desire to fuck and arguably the desire to take care of the children that come from fucking sometimes is really all you need to make sure that like we keep reproducing because those are like such strong desires in most people like not everyone even wants to do either of those two things but like enough of us do that humans keep going yeah i mean and like asexual people have sexual ch children oh, that's, that's weird <laughs> Asexual yeah, people right, have right. kids that don't inherit asexuality, you know, like the, the, right. the, the assumption that any feature is going to be immediately and directly passed on. It, it almost makes me think of like a children's storybook or something like the, the, the construction worker, has Papa construction has a construction worker. worker genes that he passes on yeah. to his construction worker child. So yeah, I, I'd like to stake the general position that if it can be explained by culture, it probably should be. It makes so much sense that human evolution would be shaped for openness and 
multiple possibilities rather than closing itself off. Because if you close yourself off to, oh, I'm only attracted to this waist to hip ratio or something like that, then that means if there's some sort of context where that waist to hip ratio is missing, then those people have those people rely on that as like their fetish, this waist to hip ratio or something like that. That's an evolutionary disadvantage to be too attached to any particular waist to hip ratio. Right. But an openness to reproduce with a wider spectrum of waist to hip ratios and so on could be quote unquote evolutionary beneficial. Greetings, Adaptation Nation, and welcome back to The Science of Women. As always, I am your host, Young Smooth. But before we get started, this week we have a special offer at The Science of Women University, our online course for lonely young men. Use the coupon code PREDATOR1 before September 1st, and you can get 10% off and a free Predator necklace. As we always say, in the jungle of the sexual marketplace, there are predators and there are prey. Take our course at the Science of Women University and become a certified sexual predator in just six weeks. All right, let's get started. As always, I am joined by my sidekick, who gets slightly less women than me, but is still a very impressive amount, Player X. Thanks for having me, man. Sup? Doing good, man. I've was with a couple girls last night. Oh yeah, a couple girls? Yeah, I said, your outfits look whack as fuck. Smart. Showing them you ain't no simp. And then all of a sudden, they're coming back to my place. Yeah, you can't get too mad at them, man, because they evolved that way. That's true. You know, evolutionarily speaking, women are always pregnant. Like, in their heads, they're always thinking like, oh, I'm weak and pregnant. You know, when I approach a woman, and this is why I recommend to everyone, when you approach a woman, you gotta come up in there with the energy like, hey, I can hunt. I can bring home the meat. You say that to a woman? True, man. Boom, she starts ovulating. Sometimes I'll whip out of my pocket some jerky or some berries, something like that. It just clicks on in the hunter-gatherer psychology. She just, it makes me irresistible. Yeah, it's biological, man. It's evolutionary. Whip the jerky out of your pocket. Show them the blueberries. You're going home with a honey that night. Another good line you can use on women? Hey, I'm three inches taller than you and three years older than you. And you know what else makes three? You, me, and this bottle of expensive champagne. That works on like three levels. Women are attracted to math and success. Older, taller guys. Alphas. Real men. Real men like you and me who don't cry. Evolutionarily speaking, you have, have you ever cried? No, nah, man, I can't cry. I lost Skippy. Skippy was my like my best dude, man. Like oh, I grew Skippy. up with Skippy. We, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I loved Skippy. We man, lost man. Skippy, man, and like I didn't cry a single tear because I mean, evolutionarily speaking, that would attract velociraptors, saber-toothed tigers. tigers. Yeah. yeah, you're busy crying. Whoop, you get sideswiped by like a gorilla who just punches you in the head, turns you into yeah. his meal instead of you turning him into your meal. And like I honor Skippy. I'm traumatized by losing Skippy. I think the whole community is. But no, I didn't cry even once, and I never would. Just focused on building my shoulder ratio. Put all that energy into building at my shoulder width. Absolutely. That way you can beat the saber-toothed tiger. You can beat the chimpanzee in the fight if it ever comes to that. We're just monkeys, man. We're just, we're just big, crazy monkeys with big ideas. I mean, that's why I always keep a gun in my pocket, and I'll sometimes flash it. And when I meet a woman, I'll say, hey, look at this. The safety's off. I can protect you. Then she's like, wow, I feel safe. Yeah, man, that's always that's why I always do my knife tricks. 
Right. Yeah. It's dangerous, but in control, you know, those knife could go flying off in every direction under the care of a less But if it comes down to it, I can start stabbing for me and mine. I can just stab, stab, stab. And she knows, she's like, if it comes to it, he can stab, he can stab him. And those knife tricks, they're impressive. You always catch it by the handle. I love it. It's my passion. And it's a, it's a tool you can use in your everyday life. And it's a great way to show dominance over other men. It's a great way to stab other men who might be having sex with your girl. Yeah. Or who thought about having sex with your girl or whose girl you want to have sex with. Yep. A lot of uses for stabbing. That's why we evolved stabbing, man. Yeah. If you think about it, picking up a sharp rock and making that stab in motion with it, that's, uh, I imagine that happening all the time in, Flint in our sometimes. evolution, in Flint sometimes, evolutionary history. Absolutely. You know, we didn't have contraception back then, but we definitely had stabbing. It's fucked up, but true. Now that there is contraception, the pill, women don't even know what they want anymore. That's why so many good men out there can't get dates. Am I right, fellas? Not us, but the fellas listening. I know a lot of them have that problem, not us. No, yeah, they look up to us because we're cool. Let's just be honest. In evolution, there was an evolutionary period where we evolved things like strategies of misogyny and so therefore those strategies of misogyny are natural i mean we can deny it we can be like oh i'm not a monkey but look it's biological and it's actually what women want it's sort of their fault it's evolutionary and if you don't like that listen to a different show yeah if you want to be lied to red pills too bitter spit it out see if i care us alphas we're gonna hang out here we're gonna be sucking on the red pills We're going to suck the whole outer coating off, and then we're going to swallow it when it breaks down. Yeah, betas would be too afraid of getting powder in their mouth. Oh, it's going to taste chalky. It's going to be gross. We don't swallow it right away. No, no. We taste the red pill. We don't just swallow the red pill. We taste the red pill on this show. Yeah. We're we're not just going to swallow it when it's got the gel coating on. We're going to wait until the gel coating ruptures from our spit. It's going to rupture the gel coating. Then we're going to taste that red pill, and then we're going to swallow it. I'm sorry, but if you're listening to this and you don't, suck the pill until the dust comes out into your mouth, you're an evolutionary dead end. Then that's why we have this program to help turn weak beta pill swallowing, evolution denying, weakling losers into pill sucking alpha bitter tasters who pick up women like crazy if they sign up for our program. Now, when they sign up on our program, we're getting feedback like, oh, oh yeah. I just picked up a hundred women at once with I one pickup to, line over a microphone. I was a virgin until I was 40 years old, but now I'm 42. I've gone through your program and I've had sex with over 10,000 women. That's a common thing. you hear. Yeah. No, that's the sort of stuff that we actually expect at this point. And I mean, aside from a few small, I don't know the numbers exactly, but there's a few cases of user error where people right, of course, buy the, the program and they don't do all the steps of the program so that's properly. That's user error. That has nothing to do with it. If you don't do it right, you can't expect to get the results. Exactly, so there's no refunds yeah. for user error. If the It's like buying furniture and then putting it together improperly, not following the instruction, then right. being like, oh, my desk doesn't Something's work. wrong with this furniture. Well, actually, maybe, it maybe, it's, maybe it's the user. Look at this one. I now have over 700 offspring. I've been spraying all over the place wow. onto ripened fields. Well, it's science. I, yeah. I think that's the thing is when you're dealing with something that is science. Yeah, like evolutionary of, psychology. Yeah. yeah, you get a lot of results that really work. In people's everyday lives, yeah. This has been the Science of Women, and we are out of time. But before we go, I just wanted to mention Evo Gitch Paleo Underwear. Are you wearing yours right now? Yeah, man, these Evo Gitch are heavenly. 
It feels like the evolutionary environment of adaptation in my pants. These synthetic undergarments soothe and protect your genes by perfectly recreating the environment that human genitals are adapted to. They're available at the Science of Women's store, and if you're working to hoard your resources and attract evolutionarily materialist women, you can save money by buying EvoGitch in a package with my book, Women Are a Separate Species Who Must Be Trapped and Tricked by Young Smooth. I wrote the foreword. Forward by Player X, that's true. On the importance of scientific neutrality and curiosity against the censorious hordes of the cancel culture phenomenon by Player X. The foreword is a must read. Someone's got to talk about this shit. Yeah, it's hard to talk about any of this stuff anymore. Right, but we evolved to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely, but people coming after us left and right. Yeah, if you don't like it, don't listen. That's what we say. If you don't like it, don't listen. Why are you showing up in chat saying the something negative? The is free. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other sort of fallacies that fits really commonly in Evo Psych discussions that I've had with people is this obsession with, it's almost like the how debate bros will try to use the most egregious and outrageous example they can of be like to like this is really going to clarify our thoughts is like i'm going to bring pedophilia and the holocaust into this thought experiment and then we can (laughs) really clarify what we what's really going on like evo psych has this general tendency to focus on the most shocking outrageous and it's like a book selling kind of maneuver like the only way that you get to go on joe rogan the way that you get to go on jordan peterson back in the day we get you on the tonight show is make your book something like Men are irresistibly horny and will cheat on their wives, and I can prove it from nature. Or holocausts are evolutionarily adaptive. We might not like it, but that's the way it is. Or people talk about like the evolutionary benefit to rape or whatever, or like sexual aggression. It gets to another yeah, core issue with it. If you're talking about sexual aggression and you want to like locate that in like a mating strategy that anatomically modern humans developed because it's like it's useful or whatever to pass your genes on you run into this problem of like hyper specificity of like you you have to think of a reason why we would specifically evolve that as a strategy rather than just saying, oh, you know, throughout all of evolutionary history, it's going to be useful for a species to have some capacity for aggression because like you can fend off predators, you can protect yourself, like the basic capacity for aggression in terms of evolution just makes like obvious sense, like to have that available and the basic desire for sex obvious why that exists you don't have to like come up with a specific explanation that like there's this strategy of specific sexual if you have the capacity for aggression and the capacity for sex like sometimes those are both gonna overlap in behavior like people are gonna do aggressive things that are also sexual like it's not you don't have to come up with a reason for why it specifically was adapted for. Uh, and I mean, like, I'm saying you don't have to come up for I guess, like, if we're, there was really good evidence that it was specifically adapted for, that would be one thing. Uh, but there isn't really good evidence for it. So it becomes a thing of, like, why are people so invested in claiming that this is a specific adaptation? 
And then we, there's a tendency in the Evo site guys to be like, okay, we found that 0.75% of the population has psychopathic traits. Less than one in 100 people have psychopathic traits. Now we're going to make a theory that assumes that this rare niche thing is an adaptive trait in a population where the vast majority don't have that trait. And, and the reason I th think why they go for that kind of logic, even though it's kind of weird to be like, like this, the steel man would be that there's different evolutionary niches within humankind. Yeah, and like, different strategies and some small percentages landed on this strategy that manages to thrive in the margins or whatever. Yeah, but th there's a weirdness in focusing on when making your theories. Like instead of focus focusing on something that pretty much everyone does or a like not being a psychopath, having empathy for other human beings. or I yeah, mean, they, people do talk about that in an evolutionary context, to be fair, but that's not like you're saying the headline grabbing Evo psych. That's, yeah, that's not the Joe Rogan interview. Like, yeah, humans evolved to be empathetic. But the thing is, is like, if you wanted to make a statement about what humans evolved for and be accurate, humans evolved to be empathetic is way, way more accurate than humans evolved to be psychopaths. Right. And again, yeah, there's like... Just because you can come up with a story for how being a psychopath might make you more likely to reproduce, like you can manipulate people into having sex with you or whatever, that doesn't mean that there's a specific evolutionary adaptation for being a psychopath. Like it could just be humans have general capacities for behavior in different contexts and depending on their individual development and maybe to some extent their genes or like susceptibility to particular behaviors or something some may exhibit this behavior but that could just be like a result of other things that evolved like even just like a general capacity for empathy not functioning properly in an individual like capacity for empathy could be the evolved thing and then just like sometimes it doesn't function for whatever reason there's like all these other ways to frame behaviors other than the idea that every single behavior is an evolutionarily adapted for like it's if it exists and it's stable throughout populations over time like what's the evolutionary strategy behind it there has to be one it's just like a wrong way of thinking about things one of the major weird things about evo psych or like i think the wrong theoretical basis of it is like called massive modularity theory which is just this idea that like every single behavior is like an adapted for trait right yeah yeah the, the assumption is that like every aspect of every body can be accounted for by an affirmative evolutionary process that every everything you see serves a specific purpose at some point in evolutionary history right there's never random side effects genes are never tied together in unpredictable ways like you never have the size of your fingers changing as a result of a selection and some sort of other gene that had an interplay with multiple like this idea of there being like a gene for every individual thing that could just be turned on or off is like not actually how genetics works we now go to frontiers of evolutionary psychology on uh, this segment we're going to be looking at some research from 2007 on at least as it was presented by the media it is now scientifically validated that women really do prefer pink 
or blue for boys, pink for girls. It's science. <laughs> These are the types of headlines that were coming out at the time in 2007 uh, when this little news cycle over this study was put out there. I was in like BBC, like livescience.com. This is almost like we talked about, about how it's hard because EvoPsych is like a wide variety of hypotheses. It's hard to parody EvoPsych without sort of accidentally, like I feel like the EvoPsych argument for women preferring pink is like a parody of EvoPsych. Like in our notes, one of the, when we were spitballing, I remember when did women evolve bows on their head was yeah, like- something we talked about doing. <laughs> little pink bows well to be fair i don't know if this one ever like really caught on like i don't hear david bus out there talking about this or like any prominent but it was big enough to get a news cycle around it uh, and it follows the basic pattern so what do you want to do if you want to figure this out well of course you get 208 british people in their 20s uh, and you ask them what their favorite color is on a scale, actually in the study on a scale from green to red, rather than red to blue. The, some of the article titles mentioned blue, uh, but this study didn't actually look at blue. It was on from green to red. I think because previous research has shown, according to this article I was reading, a near universal slight preference for blue over red and green by both men and women. So they decided to look at green versus red in this one and look at men, men versus women. Right. Okay. So the da- the data is <laughs> the, pre- the previous data before this was like a sort of universal preference for like slight. Obviously, not every person likes blue, but on average. There's a slight preference for it. <laughs> so, okay, humans have a universal slight preference for blue, according to contemporary data. And when choosing between red and green, women will slightly more often choose shades of red to green. Yeah, there's, there's like a graph included, and it's like two overlapping bell curves, basically, where women's peak is near the red end of the spectrum, not all the way at fully red, but nearer to it. And then men's peak is more on the green end. So, you know, that's a, among 100, 208 British people, that's, it seems to be an average preference. So, but of course we want to do this cross-culturally. So to make sure that this is, you know, a, a biological fact and not just something about current contemporary British culture. Right. It's we, obviously a deep biological genetic fact, but we can, I guess, do another survey just to be absolutely <laughs> sure, because clearly we found a genetic yeah, it, it's, deep-coded <laughs> preference for red ahead of green in women. Uh, so we had 208 British people. Let's add in about 30 recent Chinese immigrants to England because they just came from China. So they come from a yeah. different culture. So They're coming uh, with the, the, the Chinese mentality on whether women and bo- girls are pink or, or and boys are blue or not. So there's uh, this time again, two overlapping bell curves, but this time they both peak in the red, although the men's is slightly green shifted, but they both prefer more reddish hues over greenish hues. But the men prefer slightly more greenish red than the women. I've so heard enough. It, it's women a, prefer pink. 
women prefer pink. And if we look back in our evolutionary history, it seems likely that this is because women were always gathering, as right. we know in the ga- they would gather and red and pink things. They were gathering. Yeah, a ripe berry is pink, after all, like or red. I can't believe how um, good science is these <laughs> days. That's so cool. It's so cool to learn that about. When when I learned about the comparative ranking of blue, red, and green among two populations of people in Britain, that was the coolest thing I learned about the natural tendency of women to prefer pink I've ever heard in my life. And, and recent research has uh, confirmed this. There was a, a two, 2018 study where they also surveyed some British people and some uh, Indian people this time from India. So, and there was, I don't have as much detail on that, but I guess there was probably some statistical difference between the two groups. I saw someone mention it was confirmed. Um, but one of the major problems with this, besides it being really weak data, is that we also have like information about history to know that this was not a universal thing where it was thought that pink is a girl's color and blue is a boy's color. Yeah, that's right. It was basically pink for boys and blue for girls in Victorian times, right? The Sunday Sentinel in 1914 told American mothers, if you like the color note on the little one's garments, use pink for the boy and blue for the girl if you are a follower of convention. Well, the data just proves that because they're actually ranking what they prefer in the opposite sex. Men, oh, right. women prefer red colors, which is why they like a handsome man wearing pink. Uh, that's why men wear pink is to attract them. They just have it all back. It's all the data is oh, solid, yeah, but they right. have it backwards. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. Men are naturally pink because they need to attract women. Yeah. yeah and women, women are, are naturally, naturally blue, blue because they need to attract men. Oh, it just makes so much sense. The wool has been removed from all of our (laughs) eyes. Uh, Interestingly, there's also research on color preferences in infants, which find that infants prefer bright primary colors of any kind, and there's no sort of discrimination between bright colors. And it's not until about age four uh, when a shift happens and girls start to express more of a preference for pink and boys start to express a dislike of pink. Right, when they start hunting and gathering. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, when they have gotten old enough, they've started to, like, consciously imbibe gender norms and that sort of preference shift happens. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's because they start hunting. No, it's the truck center of the brain lights up uh, at age four. Yeah, I wonder, you know, this, this makes me think, too. Let's be honest, fellas. Pink is a nice color. Just say it. Say it with your whole heart. It's okay. Why do men have to pretend we don't like light red? It's just another color on the... It's like, oh, yeah, the the rainbow is so beautiful. Well, pff, except, except light, for that right, sort of, right. you know, <laughs> the yeah. womanly one. Uh, I'm all, not a girl. <laughs> I wouldn't like that part of the spectrum of color. I've also heard in like certain pseudo-mystical-y, like spiritually circles where they make these like Jordan Peterson-esque major associations between things that fire is masculine and that red is a color that represents fire. So red is a masculine color uh, and blue is a color that represents water and oceans, which is a cooling sort of feminine thing. And so blue is a feminine color. I've heard that in various places. It's very different again than the sort of cultural norms. Evolutionarily, that proves to not be the... Evolutionarily, that's impossible because we surveyed some college students about their... (laughs) This just said British citizens. I'm not sure if they were all college students, but... Yeah, we we surveyed some British citizens and immigrants 
Yeah. And found a very slight preference for red ahead of green. For women, yeah. Checkmate. And that was Frontiers of Evolutionary Psychology. See, I think evolutionary psychology is not best understood as a subcategory of science. It's best understood as a political movement. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there is, at least in theory, a type of scientific methoding going on where you identify things about the state of human history that were stable over long periods of time, theorize about adaptive mechanisms that might have served us during those times, and then checking to see whether we have those adaptive mechanisms now. But in practice, that's almost impossible to do because we don't know that much about a stable environment that we had in history. Uh, And it's really, really hard to measure human behavior and come up with results that suggest these are like biological behaviors and not sociologically rooted behaviors. Like, you know, you you discussed at like dead bodies or uh, running away or freezing from predators. These are sort of psychological phenomena you can say, yeah, basically everyone has that. Maybe, maybe there's a few that don't, but basically everybody has those things. Those are embedded in our psychology and it is not just socially prescribed. Yeah. Evo psych is like an umbrella could incorporate both the sort of political movement that we're talking about and also the study of the interplay between evolution and psychology in a serious scientific way. Like as a term, it could apply to either, but there's all these different terms. Like there's human behavioral ecology, evolutionary anthropology, human ethology, cognitive archaeology. And then for some relevant parts, like other ologies come into it, like primatology and anthropology. Right. So the the specific term evolutionary psychology seems to me to be associated with David Buss and this sort of trend in the mid 80s to mid 90s, the series of like books that were released around a certain set of ideas that have like certain defining common factors. On the evolutionary anthropology thing, I read this book, Mothers and Others. It's like a speculative prehistory, draws on primates with overlapping features with humans and like ethnographic records of like different cultures around the world to basically sketch out this case that it's very likely that the relationship of child rearing and motherhood shaped aspects of human biology. And like it's a speculative evolutionary anthropology, so it gets into stuff that's kind of like evo psyche, and I wouldn't co-sign as like definitely the truth. And there's ways with anything where you can start naturalizing or implying that like it's natural because it's good is an implication that a lot of people have in their heads. So you always have to be conscious about how you talk about this stuff. But mothers and others draws a very different picture of the human split from other great apes. So this is like humans breaking off from other apes. This isn't a stone age evo kind of thing. This is a theory that would go back even further. And the basic idea of it is that humans evolved to be group parents, not just have group child rearing, but like literally parent in groups, like breastfeed each other's children, split up child rearing duties amongst both men and women. And like one of the interesting things they brought up that really got gears turning for me is like people can express prolactin, which is like a hormone that 
helps create milk and it's also associated with like nurturing behavior. Men who are around children or men who are around babies in particular develop a lot of prolactin. And people who haven't had a kid themselves can be induced to breastfeed by just being around. Like we have this chemical ability in our physical bodies. And even at least some men, it hasn't been studied how many men can breastfeed, but at least some men can breastfeed when kept in constant presence of a infant. Yeah, yeah, if you're taking care of babies all the time and there's documented instances of it happening both for like non-natal mothers with like female typical biology, but also like people with more male typical biology. So yeah, like a hundred percent of people in can theory breastfeed. can be induced to breastfeed. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you, and if you take exogenous hormones, like there's like a protocol for mothers who are having difficulty breastfeeding basically involves like taking prolactin or like a drug that makes you make more prolactin or something. I can't remember which one, uh, but either way, like increasing your prolactin. Yeah. Anyone can breastfeed if you do that. Yeah. So the book has a few like just so stories that I'm not convinced of. And there's, there's moments that are kind of like Evo psych vibe ish, but the, the, the thing that it's advancing, like if you want to take this seriously in the, this is the science of what we are and what's natural is good and we should seek out to do it. Then the answer that it gives is that like human beings are in terms of sex, kind of non-binary and motherhood or parenthood uh, motherhood can be done with a penis uh or things that are associated typically with motherhood yeah um anyone can nurture little babies because they're cuties yeah and as someone who recently had a kid it makes a lot of sense to me that it would have been really useful if i could have breastfed the whole time <laughs> or if other people were breastfeeding and or because it takes a lot of time it happens like a 24-hour thing basically right so you're waking up in the night to feed constantly and like to put that amount of breastfeeding on an individual is like a very intense amount of breastfeeding. Right. I could imagine in the future, you know, guys being like pressured, like feminist to help dad, around yeah. the house with the breastfeeding. Yeah, a little yeah. More. it's not just it's not just like do uh, <laughs> dishes, keep the house clean, or whatever. Figure out like ways to support in other ways. It's like no, we're splitting this breastfeeding fifty fifty. <laughs> it's conservatives' worst nightmare. Just like, no, men have to, we should be taking prolactin blockers because I just, nothing, <laughs> let nothing ever leak <laughs> from those names. So there's a possibility if that theory is true, that by the time we got to the Stone Age, we were a species that were constantly breastfeeding each other's young. Like sort uh, of defined by a ubiquitous motherhood. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I it's mean, an interesting book. It's the most interesting of, of the sort of, I was... Reading some, yeah, other Evo psyche, but less conservative leaning. Yeah, I, I started reading something about like diversity of sexual expression in nature. And I read something about the evolution of altruism and like the different debates in the history of whether evolutionary altruism is possible. And uh, those ones I kind of abandoned. This one I read all the way through. Yeah, I, I haven't read it. It would probably agree with me a lot more than a lot of the popular Evo psych call it. Um, but there's probably also would have some of the same problems with it of like feeling like there's too, like it's too specific. It's like, I, I feel like these are like stories about our history. They're, they're frameworks for interpreting human behavior through an evolutionary lens, which we can have different frameworks for that, which you're kind of laying out here that can have evidence for them as well. But like, I don't, 
yeah, I don't see myself necessarily accepting anything like that as like, we know it's true unless we get like, we invent the time machine. It's a classic anti-Evo psych argument is like without the time machine to test these theories, we don't really know. We don't have good ways to test them. Yeah. I mean, we, we could have a leading theory if we started mixing in a good combination of different evidence paths, including like archaeological, but you're dealing with a time frame that's so large. There's so much that you don't know too. Like you could have a strong selection and pressure in one way for 500,000 years and then suddenly have a strong selection pressure in another way and then evolve features that are built on that pushing of different selection pressures at different, like we're talking about a multi-million year period. So like figuring out all the loops, the ups and downs of human evolution, what finally squeezed out this thing that's like us, you know, like polishing a stone of (laughs) human evolutionary Plinko sanding down the stone into the humans. That's interesting that you came across that in Mother's I knew that stuff I knew about breastfeeding because I've been following the Twitter discourse about trans women breastfeeding, where people saying it's like impossible because of biology or whatever. And it's just like, well, no, actually, like everybody can breastfeed. Yeah, I didn't know it was in mothers and others, uh, male breastfeeding as part of the theory or whatever. Sort of, yes. I should be clear in the distinctions between the the male breastfeeding thing is more like my little theory, my personal little oh, theory. You're like adding on to the motherhood. I'm, I'm building right. on some of the ideas. She does mention babies sucking on the nipples of fathers or like uncles or whatever. But like, okay, the overall argument of her book is more that humans are these like expert mind readers that one of the things that distinguish, she says like, she identifies as an evolutionary psychologist. And she says in a lot of evolutionary psychology, the focus is on horrible things like violence or rape or whatever. That's the typical thing that people talk about this brutal war of history or something. But some of the things that make humans unique compared to other primates specifically around child rearing and motherhood is what she focuses on is potentially having big implications about sort of like who we are as a species if we want to use projections analysis of history to talk about who humans are. Yeah, and like primates in general have tendencies towards status competitions of various kinds and like fighting over things and stuff, like all sorts of primates can see that. But humans have this unique wired ability to read each other's minds and be kind of like equipped to collaborate with one another. And she theorizes that this comes out of alloparenting strategies, like shared parenting of youth strategies. One of the examples she gives is marmosets or another species that does uh, like shared breeding. And marmosets babble like babies do when they get the age that other marmosets and their mothers start taking care of them. So her theory is that like babies babble to be cute, not just to their mother, but to be cute to their dad, their aunt, their grandma, their neighbor and stuff to make sure that babies always get the care that they need. Oh, yeah. These manipulative babies strategizing (laughs) to just, I'm going to be extra cute. So you take care of me. Now, I know, obviously, that's not what she's saying. It's a when she talks about breastfeeding, she's usually talking about like she gives there's some ethnographic data apparently in in the human relations area files, which is a big collection of ethnographic data about different human cultures, 87% of foraging societies have at least some sharing of breast milk between like, say, ants or, you know, wet nurse equivalents or whatever. You know, so the, the vast majority of forager societies have shared breastfeeding. So that's like one of the points of data she uses. And then she also compares to some different animals like 
marmosets and the cotton top tamarind is another aloe parenting species and she traces different features that they have that even though they're further than us from like chimpanzees they share some features with us like the cotton top tamarinds also have this tendency to spontaneously give gifts to each other like to just hand things to each other just to be nice and babies do human babies do that starting from like four or five months old like a friend of mine was telling me a story recently about oh no you were telling me this story uh oh yeah my friend who said his baby puts her soother in his mouth like she takes it out of her mouth yeah, like and she tries to like, share it yeah like a... you you too <laughs> you can have it so that that instinct is found in humans universally but also in some other aloe parenting species specifically the cotton top tamar and she stresses too that like human brain size growth uh in the historical record as we're aware of it this allo parenting strategy, this mind reading of babies, this babbling thing, and this shared group parenting thing predates the growing of human intelligence and brain size. She says this is like a necessary, this allo parenting primate combination that we are is like a necessary precondition of what developed into human intelligence, that it comes before. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like, yeah, I... We, we can't know everything about our evolutionary history, but it does make more sense to me based on who, like what humans do now, that like a type of universal parenthood, motherhood, like uh, the amount that we invest in our parenting seems to be a thing that's pretty like across the board with humans. Like we have to, that's like a, every kid needs to be parented for a really long time in order yeah. to grow up. No, it's is, one of the unique things about us is how helpless infants are for, and how long they're helpless. Right. And every infant is like that. Every infant needs to be cared for for years. Whereas right. like, like every woman isn't attracted to quote unquote guys. dominant men or rich guys <laughs> yeah. or like all these other things that Evo Psych talks about are like far from universal. You get these tiny statistical differences. Whereas like, yeah, the amount of parental investment that we have is like universal. Not that every parent is the best or that everybody becomes a parent, but that everybody needs a high investing parent in order to survive and grow as an infant and child. So that part makes a lot of sense to me. So to tie this all to male breastfeeding, I was reading this. I was thinking about the shared parental thing in humans, and I was remembering, like, I remember reading an article about how men can technically breastfeed if their nipples are stimulated and et cetera, and I looked it up and I started reading about it, and it turns out it's about levels of prolactin, and that women have much higher levels of prolactin than men, but new fathers have a higher level than normal. Apparently, there's this uh, mythological trope in European Jewish and Chinese culture of the breastfeeding widower, the lactating widower is like a man who loses his wife and then starts breastfeeding yeah, the baby. He's got to pick up the slack. Yeah. And this is, this is like a story that's told all around the world. And there's also examples. There's proven examples of this actually happening like over the last hundred years, like different anecdotes of individual men who, for some reason or another, it's not really clear what triggers it, but men who have nothing unusual about them, no health issues, they just spontaneously start lactating in the presence of babies. Charles Darwin said, in man and some other male mammals, the mammary glands have been known to occasionally become so well developed as to yield a fair supply of milk. As the founder of evolution said that. Also, Aristotle said, from time to time, milk has been found in a male. So we've been noticing this for a very long time. So I was thinking about this and sort of reading about it. And 
I mean, I'll just be honest. The thing that I really like about it is how interesting and funny and counterintuitive it is to imagine that we could have evolved for universal breastfeeding in the, the parlance of Evo Psych. We evolved for, isn't really accurate in any case. You never evolve towards a function. Like you don't evolve wings because you want to fly, for example, right? Yeah. Uh, every step along the way needs to make sense. But just the fact that men have fully functioning mammary glands, the capacity to produce milk that is just latent and developed. Stephen Jay Gould gives an explanation for why men have nipples, which is the more standard thing, which is that we evolved it for breastfeeding and mothers and women, and men have it because it's just simpler to give it to everyone. So it's always there for breastfeeding mothers. Like, we don't have to specifically evolve not having nipples. There's no reason to. So we just have these dormant mammary glands. So here's the alternate theory, courtesy of me just thinking about stuff and thinking it's funny. is like, maybe there was a time in ancient history, or this could happen at times during human evolution. There's a lot of mammals that actually have the ability for male breastfeeding to a certain degree. Maybe there was a time where there was a real strong survival advantage for groups where men being able to breastfeed made the difference between death and life for young. And so therefore, the children that were in the care of groups of people that included at least some men who could breastfeed would therefore be better equipped to survive. I mean, if you just think about it in pure game theory, having more abilities on your ability sheet, I feel like there's, you know, you just run into that situation where it turns out to be useful. You're a, a widower. Right. Uh, and like, it just makes sense to me that if I could have an extra ability on the sheet, like it's a benefit of, over evolutionary spans of time. Yeah. And par part of the reason it's so fascinating to me is like, as the father of a baby that a you know six month old the emotions and the intensity like i've compared it to friends as like a drug trip of just like how much your psychology is impacted in those early days where like prolactin is so powerful and i got a sub breastfeeding dose <laughs> the power of that chemical that i have in me that's mostly latent that came out in this context is another layer to like why this is so fascinating to me as a potential a potential thing but I think if you're critical of EvoPsych and you read this book, there's some elements of it that you can criticize the implications of. But I think really the bottom line of this book, the thing that I think is worth taking away from it and the thing that makes it, I think, the best EvoPsych book I've read. I think, yeah, the best EvoPsych book I've read. She raises the point, basically, she doesn't use these words. This is my interpretation. Humans evolved for maximal freedom when it comes to child rearing. That is, if a child is born, it can be raised by mother and father, just the mother, just the father, a community of people that includes neither the mother nor the father. If the mother runs away, the baby can survive. If the father runs away, the baby can survive. In effect, nature has given human beings, when it comes to child rearing, the maximum freedom possible when compared to all other animals. And I think that's actually a really cool thing. And there's an evolutionary basis to claim that. Evolutionarily, biologically speaking, Human beings can choose to structure their child rearing practices in basically whatever way we want, given these constraints. So the, the constraints is that babies need attention, slightly more attention than one person can give. So on top of that, it's up to us. We could ship our babies off to the other side of the country and be raised in some sort of communal baby farm and that could work. You know, we could, we could always pass on babies to aunts and grandmother to deal with or grandfather and uncles to deal with. And like, there's a huge amount of variation in what is possible and how we structure our child rearing. And like the sort of nuclear family idea is just one context that works to raise children. But if we wanted to say abolish the family and 
as people talk about doing of like having it takes a village restructuring the way that we deal with child rearing there's infinite options available and biologically evolutionarily we are empowered to do that and that's the thing that i took away from this book most i think we now go to a futuristic utopian cafe where two friends are discussing bad ideas about genes from history. Yum, my reservation came through. Steak and lobster, check this out. Oh wow, steak and lobster in one meal. Yeah, apparently this is what they used to eat back in the day. It's a, it's a little decadent, but you know, every now and then within environmental limits is what we always say. You know, I had a big breakfast, so I'm just gonna eat a salad, some rolls, Maybe a little bit of those uh, refried beans there. Those look good. So people used to actually think that there were genes directly for like a behavior, like you have a gene and then causes a behavior directly. Yeah. The the idea that there's a gene for like one evolved a gene for meanness or something like that was sort of the common parlance in the latter half of the 20th century. Sociobiology talks about this by E.O. Wilson. The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins has this sort of element to it. It's, they did a lot of game theory around, like, if we assume competition this way, this gene for XYZ will win out. But that's generally not the case that, like, individual genes constitute individual complex behaviors. Like, and this actually was really important in, in our history, getting to this utopian present where... You know, we have all our needs met. Society organizes a giant, directly democratic library. Everyone sort of Renaissance people uh, with free time and rich lives. You know, we take it for granted now, but there was a time when we thought that there was individual genes for things. It'd be like, oh, he's got a gene for meanness. Like, don't let him reproduce. You know, there's there's a there's a history like that across the 20th century, mostly. Right. Yeah. I mean, nowadays the common sense is that throughout human evolutionary history, we've evolved a great many capacities for a wide variety of different types of behaviors that are actualized or not within the context of an environment. And so, you know, while probably every human being has the potential for meanness or great levels of aggression within their genetics, varying experiences throughout their lives, starting in the womb and going throughout their entire life, and especially how society interacts with people, whether it causes situations where aggression is necessary or not, it's going to regulate how much actual aggression or meanness we see among people. The biological capacity is there, but it actually showing up in behavior is another thing. Yeah, there's multiple layers to the way that this biological genetic determinism isn't true. I mean, one of them is that we have the capacity on an individual level to pursue a wide variety of strategies by our conscious thought, we can consciously decide to do one thing versus the other. And that ability to think and plan and so on is itself the meta-evolutionary strategy that ties together a bunch of different types of perceptions, uh, but provides us the benefit of being able to adapt to different circumstances. There's not only that, but there's also the sort of phenotypic adaptivity, which means that it can even be that there are multiple different types of genetic expression within someone. DNA kind of has like contingencies where different things in the environment can bring out different types of genetic expression in species. So there might be one set of instincts that is triggered by one certain environment and another set of instincts that's triggered by another environment. And there is still a genetic basis to these different instincts. 
but they're brought out by environment because genes are in sort of conversation with the environment and how they express. So like there's multiple layers. One layer is that we're conscious, that we have the freedom to pick between things and that gives us a level of flexibility that is itself an adaptation. And then also in a broader sense, and this applies to animals that don't have that, different environments can literally cause different genetic expression. There could be latent genetic capacity that isn't expressed in your body that environment brings out. We know that there's pretty wild variation that can occur based on environment and nature for yeah. other animals. Yeah, it seems so obvious and it seems so strange that anyone could have ever believed that in order to believe in evolution, it was necessary to believe not only that we evolved brains with like large prefrontal cortexes and a large amount of gray matter uh, with like, you know, certain base drives put in there like to eat and to sleep and, and then like most of the specifics happen in sort of this realm of flexibility rather than the belief that there's just this whole set of genes and maybe there's one gene per behavior or there's a bunch of different genes that could cause a behavior if they all have to be there together or like different genes could cause different variations of behavior but either way every single behavior was individually selected for it's a module inside of our head and it is itself an evolutionary adaptation. Every single behavior is. And there's a gene for it or a group of genes. It's such a massive overreach that creates this unnecessary layer of explanation to of specificity that just doesn't match with what we know about human history, which is that variation is the norm and that we've managed to spread into all different sorts of evolutionary niches and create our own niches because of that sort of ability to think and to create and to decide for ourselves and to fit ourselves into various places on the environmental spectrum. Yeah, and it turns out that embracing that and understanding that distinction and abandoning the old biases and pseudosciences of the past, it actually really helped the global revolution towards the current utopian library socialist system that we have. That, you know, it's got some hiccups here and there, but it uh, doesn't destroy the planet. And uh, I'm happier under the system than the last one, personally. Oh, yeah, I'm too young to have ever have known the past system. That's why I'm kind of naive about these. I'm just learning it for the first time. And I'm like, wow, that's so wild. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. How could they believe that? No, that weird scientific hierarchism was really central to the abusive system. It's Yeah, it seems like it was, uh, from what I understand of my history, it was kind of after a lot of the religious justifications for hierarchy started to be questioned because of new science, people decided that the only way to continue justifying these hierarchical things was to use the language of science and the veneer of science to, uh, you know, in a sort of motivated way, go out there and not perform pure science, but science with the intent of getting a result that you wanted in order to, and maybe the they were consciously doing this, but probably not. They probably just really deeply believed these hierarchical things and so said, well, science must prove them true, and they set out to prove it. And when you do science that way, you're going to end up finding what you're looking for. Right. No, and they missed out on totally obvious things, like the biological reality of male breastfeeding. Right. By the way, do you want to take this kid off of me and breastfeed him a little bit? I'm, Absolutely. I'm yeah, just... no, I've... I'm feeling kind of plump. starting to hurt I, after going that I long. I was about to pump anyway, so this is perfect. I mean, for generations, they didn't produce male milk in high quantities to help feed the young. And that's just, I mean, it's disturbing to think about the level of malnourishment that caused to not have that level of aloe parenting. Yeah, and just to 
even if you're in like a heterosexual relationship, putting all of that on the woman when the man can help out with this. Right. No. Like, well, where's the fairness in that? No, the, and the male feminists at the time were completely silent on that issue, uh, which I think is yeah, it's curious. Yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, something to learn from for sure. Little bugger chewed up my nip. Cute though. Really cute. Thanks for meeting with me. This has been a big help to my research. No problem. Well, yeah, thank you for breastfeeding my grandson. That's really helpful. Uh, hey. Body you know, feeding. That's reciprocity, right? Now you help me, I help you. It's beautiful. Mm. Oh, and it would be good for dessert. Some bananas. They're in season. Oh, yeah. We don't get bananas at all times, at all year. But that just makes it more special when we do. Yeah. I mean, you can put in a special order, but at the cost of other things. And right. I like to get my steak and my lobster. It's a little luxury, but... Yeah, whereas I like to travel a bit more, and so I eat more beans and... Ooh, these bananas look good. Fair trade. No pesticides. Shipped here low carbon on sail ships. Or actually, no, these are greenhouse ones. These are greenhouse ones. Um, my mistake. Hey, they're all bananas in my book. All bananas are good. A bag. I love that little phrase. Thank you. That's so... A bag. And that was two breastfeeding pals meeting at a communal cafeteria under perfect library socialist utopia. And now back to our show. It's my first time seeing an evolutionary psychologist. I'm so nervous. Dot dot dot. We need to talk when I get home. Please remove your train stuff out of our front doorway. Come on in. Welcome. I'm here to help. Doctor, I'm at the end of my rope. I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. I even tried Jungian psychoanalysis and nothing. I'm just searching for answers. I need to figure something out. My marriage is, is at risk. Right. Yeah. Well, the problem with all those other modalities, if you allow me to be so brash, is to say that they're not based in a scientific understanding of our evolutionary past and how that affects our behavior. And that's what I bring to the table here as an evolutionary psychologist. So let me just say you've come to the right place. You're in good hands. I have a lot of scientific information that can help you live your life. So I've been feeling a lot of anxiety lately and some depression and resentment because my husband, my husband of eight years, we've got two children together. He's been Mm, successfully mated. He's been cheating on me with college age co-eds, even though he's an old man. Ah, well, tale as old as time. No, it makes me feel horrible. What, what, What should I do? Well, I think the first thing to think about really is to remember on one level your life is already 100% a success. If you've had two children, your genes are passed on. A lot of the patients I got in here have never even made it. So on one level, I think there's really no reason to be upset about anything because in terms of evolution, you've succeeded already. Like, congratulations to you, let me just say. Thank you, but I'm, I want my husband to not cheat on me. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, some jealousy about this type of thing is natural. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Take yourself out of your own feelings just for a moment and think about this from the perspective of your husband's genes. Because, yes, your husband has had two children with you. But as we know, men are cum sprinklers in a way. Huh. Evolutionarily. Evolutionarily, one of the most effective ways for them to spread the sprinkle around is chasing after college co-eds. 
So while I certainly understand that you feel some jealousy, maybe you feel your resource stream will be threatened if he has to take care of the uh, these other women's children. So yeah, I sympathize so much. But another way to think about this is that if your husband is able to get sex with all these co-eds, that implies that he's a very high-status individual and thus quite a desirable mate. I mean, that's not the only issue we're having, you know, when I... But just before you move on, do you now realize your feelings are illogical? I'd be, I, I guess, but I feel... I, I, just I, try to meditate on it, on... Thinking about how high status that makes your husband and how desirable. But sorry, move. Sorry, you're not. I just feel like we had an we have an agreement and he's violating it. And uh, I mean, maybe consciously that's what's going on for both of you. That he knew he wasn't supposed to do it, and he made the decision. And maybe that you're feeling like that indicates a sort of lack of care for you. But I'm saying beneath all that, we're all sort of just slaves to our genes. Is there an evolutionary explanation for? Like, on certain nights of the week, my husband's supposed to be making dinner. Mm -hmm. Usually on the nights where it's his turn to cook, he's ordering takeout. But we share finances. Oh, I see. Yeah, But I actually cook dinner. I could order takeout, too. What, why is he, how does that count as his turn? Well, if you imagine what it must have been like about 10,000 to 100,000 years ago. Like a Flintstones times kind of thing? Yeah, Flintstones, cavemen, uh, small bands of people. You know, it's kind of vague, but whatever it was like at that time, mm -hmm. we must imagine that the women were at home cooking. So it's kind of natural for you to actually do the cooking. Whereas men, they more want to be seen as providers. So the way for him to provide food for you is to pay someone else to bring it. And, you know, shared finances, that's a very modern invention that the woman would have finances at all. So it kind of short circuits our evolutionary brain thinking on that. And he's, he's just trying to provide for you. I wouldn't I wouldn't get on his case about it. So he's just doing what he's evolved to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. Am I doing what I'm evolved to do by being upset about him <laughs> doing that? Yes. But that's why you're talking to me, right? You just, you know, sometimes women will often talk about these things with their girlfriends. And, and also, I have a theory that humanity evolved evolutionary psychologists like myself and that there's been forms of us all throughout history in order to help smooth this warring unending tension between men and women that exists like see he has his interests and you have yours and how do we all come to peace with that throughout history the answer to that has been one way or another getting women to just accept it men are like that and you know deal so that's kind of what i'm here to help you with to deal right so any other complaints about your husband well yeah i was hoping i mean i want to spend more time with him between work and the kids and everything, we barely get time together anymore. He's spending all his spare time going down to the basement and building a train village, a little village with a train set that goes mm, through it. Is there right. an evolutionary explanation for why my husband seems to prefer his train time and his train village to spending time with me? The person he says is the love of his life? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, on a base level, men just care more about trains and women care more about babies. That's huh. evolutionarily. Women would be home taking care of the baby while men were out inventing and discovering trains. But I think there's also another layer of this to really think through, which is that being the best at creating a train village in your basement is a type of 
peacocking. If you think about peacocks, they have very impressive plumages. Right. Um, this is a type of plumage that your husband is creating. A very common one for men, I might add. The the trying to build giant train dioramas in their basement as a way to attract college co-eds that they can spread their seed and mate with. It's a deep evolutionary strategy. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't want him to attract college co-eds. Should I like take down his train village or like forbid him from making it? Like it seemed, I said I was fine with the train village, but you're telling me it attracts college co-eds? I said, Roger, this train village is fine. Knock yourself out. Was I wrong to do that? No, you were right to do that. But again, you have to think about how much attracting the co-eds shows how high status he is, and you you be happy about that. All right. Well, uh... and just one more bit of advice: talk to me about this stuff. Talk to your girlfriends about this stuff, but don't nag him about it because a high status man like that, he could drop you in an instant, and then you'll be left with uh, nothing. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's all for today's session. I assume you'll be scheduling more. People usually are very hungry for the insights I offer. They're very useful in people's day-to-day lives, knowing these deep evolutionary truths about us. Yeah, yeah. Is this is was that all science? Oh, that was all science. That was yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, th- uh, yeah. Thank you. This has been very helpful. Yeah, people do find it helpful. Uh, so I got two quotes here, uh, one from Stephen Jay Gould and one from Bookchin, and they're about sociobiology and their critiques of sociobiology. They each wrote one. But I think what they have to say here really resonated with me about evolutionary psychology. To quote Stephen Jay Gould, what we're left with then is a particular theory about human nature which has no scientific support and which upholds the concept of a world with social arrangements remarkably similar to our own. We're not denying there are genetic components to human behavior, but we suspect that human biological universals are to be discovered more in the generalities of eating, excreting, and sleeping than in such specific and highly variable habits as warfare, sexual exploitation of women, and the use of money as a medium of exchange. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think like him having to caveat that by saying we're not saying that evolution has nothing to do with human behavior i think also gets it like a major part of this discourse which is that by framing these justifications for patriarchy or hierarchy through this pseudoscientific lens the response to criticisms that evolutionary psychology gets for not having like really strong evidence for its claims is like, oh, are you just a creationist then? You think that our psychology was created by God? You don't believe in evolution? Oh, another or, blank slate guy. You just think that we come out of the womb just ready to, we just could become anything. We could get the mind of a bird. We're just the soft putty. Yeah, I was reading this article by an evolutionary psychologist basically said, there's two main objections to evolutionary psychology. One is the religious objection that we were created and evolution doesn't exist, blah, blah, blah. And the second one comes from the standard social science model, which is the idea that human behavior has nothing to do with their genes. Our brains are 100% general purpose computers whether we're happy when we see a cute baby or disgusted by it, it's completely up to chance or to society. It's <laughs> the idea that there's like some perfect blank slate and that this is the this is, standard social science model. This is what everyone in science has thought since time immemorial until the brave evolutionary <laughs> psychologist came along and said, wait, 
there yeah, might you, be an evolutionary aspect to human. You, we, you often hear people like Steven Pinker and they talk about this time in the 20th century where everyone just believed in behaviorism and the blank slate and that, you know, we, there had been this swing in the other direction after World War II and after Hitler, etc., where people thought that it was all just totally socially constructed, nothing biological about it. This is the sort of straw man of their opposition that they'll retreat to in order to not have to justify the very specific the claims that they're making. Yeah, personally, I think to the degree it's true that following Hitler's expression of the dangers of the politicization of Darwin as a program of shaping human evolution, it might be good to overcorrect a little bit about that and explore the opposite. So here's a Bookchin quote. Here is Bookchin from Bookchin's critique of sociobiology, again, useful for the evolutionary psychology context. It'd be very useful if space permitted to explore Wilson's definitions of society, hierarchy, dominance, aggression, band, caste, communal, competition, in like words that clearly reveal his orientation towards biosocial, evolutionary, socially structured, and ethical phenomena. Wilson's ruthless reduction of social phenomena to biology in general, and genetics in particular, is obscurantist by definition. Wilson's definitions are as arbitrary as they are intuitive. We are urged, in fact, to define the term society and socially sufficiently broadly in order to prevent the exclusion of many interesting phenomena, in whose opinion and by what criteria Wilson fails to explain. Accordingly, Wilson is now free to opine on any phenomenon that captures his fancy, a totally legitimate right, if sociobiology is a purely speculative theory, but certainly intellectually outrageous, if it is, as its acolytes demand, a science. Yeah. Nailed it, Bookchin. <laughs> really, uh, really nailed it there. That's what we've been saying this whole time. If you're going to call it a science, you need way better evidence than you're putting out there. But if you want to opine on phenomenon that captures your fancy... Yeah, if you want to make a theory about history and like, this is my philosophy, this is, I think this is true based on my logical progression here presented, uh, you know, you total right to do that for sure. But I think I'm also fascinated with, like, this is a big thing about sociobiology, the book that Bookchin is talking about with these flexible definitions like hierarchy, dominance, aggression, and so on, where one of the things E.O. Wilson does in this book is, and actually uh, Stephen Jay Gould criticizes him for this as well. Across the whole book, he describes different animal species in different contexts, and he applies these super anthropomorphic framings to them, you know, king, queen subjects, specialized workers, like human institutions have hierarchies and like these are the institutions of these animal societies and so on. And then in the last chapter, he does a bunch of speculative stuff about what he thinks sort of human nature is and human evolution is like and does classic Evo psych style, you know, imagine a caveman in a loincloth and maybe this would happen. And anyways, so probably evolved to do that. Yeah, I think also Bookchin in his essay said something I thought was interesting, which is that part of the appeal of sociobiology and, and these sort of evo-psych type ideas, that people have a hunger for an understanding of their place in the natural universe. We want to understand who we are and what our relationship to the world is. And the sociobiology, evo-psych people, they're putting out a, a vision of what it means to be a human, like what it means to be this animal that we are. 
Yeah, and one that like aligns with people's common sense growing up in a hierarchical society. It's like, oh yeah, that thing that's just always kind of felt true to me because the society I was raised in, they're saying it really is true and here's why. And like, it's like, I, I think it could feel good to yeah hear those kind of things to get that type of understanding of your place in history and in society. We should express our view of the human place in the universe. <laughs> To fill that, scratch that itch for people. Yeah. I think Bookchin and Gould might both have theories. Yeah, I mean, Bookchin definitely does. Check out, I think it's episode two of our social ecology series. He has a very well-developed view on our sort of place in the trajectory of evolutionary history. Yeah, Bookchin's dialectical naturalism is very critical of both sociobiology and evolutionary biology, but also critical of Stephen Jay Gould's sort of depolitical evolution. If you want to read about it, I'd recommend... It's been a while since I read it, so I can't summarize it well, but The Philosophy of Social Ecology is on the Anarchist Library. But I can talk about sort of what I think. I don't correspond one-to-one opinion-wise on Bookchin. I talk a little bit about a positive, ethical, and conscious view of what humanity is and what its relationship is to the trajectory of evolution that brought us here. This whole process has left me skeptical about the whole project. But I feel like if we base it on actual evidence, like ethnographic or anthropological evidence, and you're not doing this sort of like weird post-talk justify, like asking very specific questions and surveys to get people to answer the way you want, and then making patriarchal political point, like, you know, let's... I also, I I think (laughs) the primatology stuff and the comparisons between chimps, bonobos, and other animals that we share features with, like the naked mole rat and stuff. There's there's stuff to be gleaned there as long as we don't take it too literally. Like, they do this, therefore we must do this, because we're obviously very right. different than all of them also. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not against compa- that. Yeah, the, a lot of those comparisons are like, they're useful for pointing something out, but like, they're not evidence of how we are, unless we actually are that way. Like, unless you have separate evidence that we actually follow these same patterns. Yeah, I think you you really need like the current data being near universal on something. You need parallel, like for me to be really satisfied on being like, this is a settled question. Right. It's like you need ethnographic data that from different cultures, like especially pre-contact cultures in the global society. And like language acquisition is a universal human thing. Like if you want to survey people and ask if they use language, you're going to get like 100% yes, basically. Yeah. So like something that's universal that you can find in contemporary polling data that matches or is extended on ethnographic data. And there's parallels through primatology, but also other animals where there's clumps of related features that seem to evolve in different places in nature. I think that's good. But then you also really want to like, I don't know, get something like archaeological or I want more hard evidence on the actual history of like what time period it is. What are the specific forces? And do we have other points of data that can coincide with those assumptions? Like having an ice age put certain pressures on people because of these different reasons. And we know that we can pull that from, you know, these instances of how ice ages affected other animals, et cetera. Like once you start pulling all that stuff together, I think then you can get into a territory that's like fairly scientific about making guesses about the past like that. But almost everything I see falls short of what I find satisfying enough to say anything more than like interesting theory on the scientific side here. Right. But if we're going to speculate romantically as 
the evo psych scientists do whether they admit it or not yeah if we want to make our own philosophical sort of like what we imagine the past was like and how we imagine that it affected us today yeah i don't know the exact mechanisms of it but i generally think that human beings have evolved for greater complexity and freedom more variability more different survival options we're not a blank slate in the sense that our mind comes pre-packaged with certain intuitions and certain cascading things that help us to make sense of the world and get connected to community. But at the same time, there's a huge variation in the ways that we could develop culturally in relation to our environment. And that itself is a survival strategy. Um, And the example of like the male breastfeeding thing, (laughs) not that this is a major force in history, although it may be, prove it's not. That's That's our challenge for the episode. But like the fact that we actually technically have that freedom, I feel like is another example of, and the general allo parenting thing also sort of connects into the sort of open-endedness of like biologically, evolutionarily, we have a lot of freedom to make cultural choices as groups and try out different ways of living. And that freedom itself is the adaptation, the ability for different people than the mother to breastfeed and raise children or to parent in groups. That's a spectrum of sort of like parental potentials and freedoms that we're biologically embedded with. And like, that's the big theme across all these different types of what makes humans unique is like our opposable thumbs on chimeral opposite hands that allow us to like grasp and grab and tweak and turn and right that's a that's a type of like dexteral freedom like dexterousness yeah so in in a sense we really did evolve a type of free like when we instead of going from paws which have more limited options to either like walk or claw or whatever we moved to be able to grab adapt climb twist and then even manufacture yeah build microchips and stuff eventually after you get to it yeah and there's no way to get to microchips without hand without thumbs no yeah absolutely so so you have like this cascade of multiple types of evolved freedoms giving this this wide spectrum i think that really is the defining feature of humanity i think uh, evolutionarily biologically speaking yeah i think it also matches what i understand about a lot of the anthropological literature is that like one of the biggest sort of findings that we have is that humans can organize themselves in a large variety of different types of social arrangements that can be either highly hierarchical or highly non-hierarchical, highly patriarchal or highly non-patriarchal or even matriarchal. There's like the variation that we find in human arrangements speaks to a type of cultural freedom we have to organize ourselves according to our desires or like how we think we should be organizing ourselves and to like, you know, use our heads, put our heads together collectively and think about how to make this work in a way that sort of matches what we want to do. Because yeah, so much of the Evo psych stuff is like limiting human agency or like making arguments that human agency is limited in all these like highly specific ways. Men are like this, women are like this, people are like this, et cetera, et cetera. But every time you come across counterexamples to all these things that they're saying are so deeply evolutionarily rooted in us, it's like you're constantly being hit over the head with this opposing fact that we have the ability to not do any of these things that they're saying that everyone does or that everyone has deep within them, but like only show up in like these slight statistical variations or whatever. There's like 
just living day-to-day life, even in an already patriarchal society that has cultural norms that kind of match a lot of the things that they're, uh, you know, trying to say are deeply rooted within us, you still like just meet people all the time who don't match up to any of these particular evolutionary things that they're like saying are so like deeply rooted within us. Yeah. And the the freedom thing applies so clearly also to just reproduction and sexual selection. We have mutual mate choice and people make mate choices over like a wide variety of potential reasons. You could have like arranged marriages versus, you know, passionate affairs that turn to children. You can have a kid whether or not you want to. You can have a kid with someone you're not attracted to. You can have a kid with someone that you really like or you really don't like. You can have a kid without ever touching them now. Like our incredible brains, our incredible thumbs, our incredible male nipples, all these things, they, they, <laughs> these, this incredible spectrum of freedom that we have. Like if you find certain things in all primates and then you find certain other things only in human beings, which did we evolve for? Which did human beings evolve for? If all primates have status competition and so on, these are things that typically evo-psych people are like, this is the human legacy, right? And maybe we do have that kind of stuff in us, right? Like we, in our history and in our potentialities. But then you look at humans like, okay, well, humans can read, they can write, they parent in groups, they care deeply about what other people think of them, they've got advanced tools, they make complex choices for sometimes incoherent reasons. They can go their entire lives without engaging in a status competition. Sometimes five of them get together with little tools that make different noises and play a little tune that sounds better together because of the way the things complement one another. And they plan it out ahead of time and they practice a lot so they can really nail it. And all of the other great apes dance to it. Yeah. For some reason, that gave me chills to say of just like just thinking about the chimpanzee or the bonobo and God bless them, our cousins, 96% the same as us. But if five of them got together, made different noise making tools and played a song that was coordinated in a melody that made the other bonobos dance. That'd be really cute. That would be really cute. Yes. And so human beings are a very cute species. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Bonobos fucking suck. (laughs) Chimpanzees fight and have status hierarchies. Human beings get together in little groups to play tunes, and then they all dance. Like, this was the thing that always bugged me about this Evo Psych stuff, is people being like, yeah, we evolved to fight and, like, act like monkeys. And it's like, the monkeys clearly evolved to act like monkeys. Any similarity we have with them probably predates being humans. So, what do we evolve for? We evolved to dance. We evolved to write poems. We evolved to take care of each other's children, you know, like... That's obviously what we are, you know, like, and I can say that without a theory of an optimized evolutionary environment. This is just basic logic. That we evolved to be what we are and not monkeys, (laughs) not like other types of monkeys. Yes. The features that we express that our closest relatives don't express are the things that define us in relation to them. And there must be some evolutionary pressure or circumstances that led to us being like us instead of like them. Right. We now go to a spaghetti restaurant. It is great to be here for spaghetti dinner with you, son, just like when you were a little boy. It looks like you really inherited your old man's gene for loving spaghetti. Like father, like son on that. I inherited it from you, you know? Our ancestors must have 
had a survival advantage for eating spaghetti. I want to put this fight behind us, Twingus. Do you mind if I call you your real name? You can call me whatever you want. I never wanted to be in a fight in the first place. You're the one who started going off about inheritance this, and you're a disappointment that. We need to talk about the inheritance. I think, you know, there's a reason that we... This is the first Just time we've had dinner. Just write me into the will, and we don't need to talk about it. I would, I would, I've said, told you a million times, I would love to write you back in the will, but are you still seeing that matronly... Me and Gilda are very happy together. Don't you think it might be a little bit dangerous for you to be in a serious and committed relationship with a significantly older woman, a matronly, even grandmotherly woman, while doing a talk radio show about evolutionary psychology, which is our family practice and our family name? extolling, you know, gendered age gaps in a quite different direction. Don't you think that's dangerous to you, your co-hosts, your fans, your producers? How much are you willing to risk for this? I know you know what the genes demand. You're spitting in evolution's face. So why would I trust you with an inheritance? Look, yeah, I go on my podcast, on my radio show, I talk about the quote-unquote science of women and, you know, whatever. It's all bullshit, right? Like, it's obviously not true. I love her. We're happy together. She's way older than me. Those are facts about the world. That's true. Why would I care about... And sorry, you think this is a Some arbitrary evolutionary how? thing. Is, like, is my son being adaptive right now? Should I, as a father, say, Oh, this is what nature intends, what my son is doing? A young man with a much older woman in my family? What about our genes? You know, I work so hard to bring your genes into this world. Your mother is three years younger than me. Three inches shorter than me and less financially successful than me. And I created you, my perfect boy, my perfect son, the light of my life. You now didn't this? bring my genes into the world. I mean, just technically, like they already existed in you and in other people and family I members. I sprayed them, son. There's people Asia and Africa, all, all around the world that have the same genes we have. Like our genes aren't, it's not, they're kind of everywhere, these human genes. We share most of our genes with like bananas, don't we? I understand the work. We both do the work. I heard you on Bro Jogan. You did great. You know, I'll say well, that as a, we have our differences, but you're an expert on being a public figure. But in terms of like, what's true? I mean, yeah. Do I want my audience to find out who I'm dating? Obviously not. That would be bad for business, but love isn't rational. Love isn't your little adaptive evolutionary theory. Love is real. It's visceral. It's right here, Pop. It's in my heart. Love is an evolutionary adaptation, son. It's chemicals, mere chemicals. A way of passing our genes on, and you know this better than anyone. So what, are people who can't have children incapable of love? Love is a way of passing our genes on? What are you talking about? Look, if you're willing to forego your inheritance for this romance with an elder, why not forego your show as well? Or at least be honest with your audience. Evolutionarily and biologically, I think that's the best way forward. Honesty with your listeners. Now, have you seen the podcast Marketplace? No. I'm a grifter, Pop. That's how you make money. You can tell the audience like what makes the most money and like this red pill dating advice shit. It's like way it's way I make more money doing this crap than you do. And can you keep it down? You're just please, this someone might hear us. You're making a mistake, son. This Gilda it's a ticking time bomb. It's gonna destroy everything you've built. It's gonna destroy our family. She knit you that scarf, didn't she? It's a very nice scarf, oh and you know God. my neck gets cold. Oh, and these little candies you put on the table, they come from her too. Look, it never hurts to have 
candy laying around. That's one thing she's taught me. Look, this connection I have with her, this is real. If there's anything humans evolved for, it's to feel this depth of connection with someone they love. And I'm not giving that up. Not for you, not for any inheritance, not for nothing. What are you gonna do about the genes? Like, what, the, what are you thinking genes-wise? What do you mean? Like, where like, are your what? genes going? My genes? My genes... Like, your genes to be passed on. Like, our family genes. I just told you, they're the same as you're everybody the, else's genes, They're not basically. the same? I mean, basically, yeah. Basically? Oh, my God. Well, it, a, a, a woman three years younger than you is basically the same as Gilda, then. But I'm not in love with a woman three years younger than me. Well, you should I'm be. I'm in love with Gilda. Well, how tall is Gilda? Three inches shorter than you? No, she's two inches taller than me. Oh my, Garcon, please, I, I will take my spaghetti dinner to go. I'm in a feud with my son. A very serious feud, including an inheritance drama. Yes, thank you. Humans didn't evolve to be puppets of your little imaginary game that you want to play, where everyone has to play these super specific roles. Humans evolved for freedom. I'm sorry, but you need to talk to her and say, this is a fling. I was young. I was inexperienced. I was looking for evolved sexual variety, and it got a little out of control. You gotta tell her this. I think what I'm gonna tell her is, Gilda, I love you. Will you marry me and adopt a child with me? Oh my, ugh. Whose genes are the, where? The human genes, Papa. The genes of the human race. Oh my God, what does that mean? That's what I care about. You're gonna be bringing some stranger's genes? To our Christmas parties? Well, not if you have that kind of attitude about it. I'm going to keep our adopted child as far away from you as Can possible. Can you at least find a young and fertile relative of her to, to do some sort of artificial thing or something? Like the cousin genes? Use your you, genes? I don't know. I mean, I get maybe if she wants Jesus. to. I'm not bringing that up, though. That's kind of a weird thing to ask. If she brings it up, I'm open to it. But look, I just wanted to have a nice spaghetti meal with you. But that's apparently that's impossible. Okay, well, I guess I will have to take you out of the epitaph of my next book. A very scientific exploration of the evolution of misogynistic attitudes and behavior. Perhaps Gilda can write something comparable and push you in her epigraph. If anything, I'd want a special thanks to the Science of Women podcast. Or uh, You put Dwingus in there, it doesn't really help me anyway, so... Well, I don't care what you call yourself these days. Your name is Dwingus, boy. Just as my name was Dwingus before you. You know, I always hated that name, but when Gilda says it, there's just... Oh my god, she's saying thing. your real name? Of course, yeah. Ugh. When she's whispering sweet nothings into my ear, it's always Dwingus. And so, Science of Woman podcaster Young Smooth has received an ultimatum from his evolutionary psychologist father to cease dating a matronly elder who he believes himself to be truly in love with. Tune in next time to find out, will he fight for love? Will he compromise for the grift? Will he fight for that inheritance? Is it true love or can Gilda do better? And what is to become of Player X? All these answers and more next time on Seriously Wrong Podcast. Well, it's all the time we have for this one, folks, but... If you enjoyed it, do stay tuned to our feed because we, in sometime in the next few episodes, are going to be returning to this topic again. Turns out we have a lot to say about evolutionary psychology, uh, and we really want to dig into more specific claims, more of the research, but also 
we want to hear from evolutionary psychologists in their own words. Uh, when Sean and I were talking about doing this one, we we listened to a lot of evolutionary psychologists making appearances on podcasts and red pill influencers who make evolutionary psychology-like arguments. And we wanted to spend some dedicated time playing some of those clips and responding to them. So we're going to do that in some follow-up episodes to this one. Yeah, this isn't just a, a subfield of science that's run wild with a you know, a group of people who are fixated on a certain political movement, which that is the case. It's also really, unfortunately, largely common sense to a lot of people. These ideas percolate in the culture. People believe variations of them are true. You hear that sort of, we evolved for that stuff all the time. And the more that we were d digging into this topic, I think, the more it became clear to me, this is a really deep and pervasive way of thinking about humanity that takes something from us and makes the world sterile and like robs us part of being human by misunderstanding ourselves and that it's very common that's everywhere and that it's it comes from the scientific place and then it spreads to your uh, dorm mate or your neighbor or whatever and then you run into it at the gym and like it affects the way that people treat you on dates yeah so we we gotta we're gonna keep going on this so we'll, we'll have more to share soon yeah, thank you uh, so much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. And an extra special thank you to our generous, beautiful geniuses on Patreon, the people who help make the show happen. Thank you again from the bottom of our heart. And if you're not a donor, why not make today the day that you sign up for a year-long subscription of Seriously Wrong, and then you know that you'll get the bonus episode every month. And sometimes there might even be more than one bonus episode in a month. I don't know. That's totally possible. It was maybe even planned. So like, it's a good time to be like, hey, well, just get it, do the year now. I get 10% off. It's, then I get access to the whole archive, all bonus episodes, and a new episode every month. That's a deal that you evolved to adapt. To buy, to yeah. pay for, evolved you, you, to... We, yeah, what did they evolve? You evolved to seek deals, obviously. And True. it's also an adaptation culturally, second nature adaptation, to support strong, independent left-wing content it helps shape the culture that we want to have so uh, so we can participate in sort of a cultural evolution together but even if not we'll see you all soon have a great week take care of those beautiful genes for us Is that our evolutionary legacy? Is that what Andrew Tate should be trying to do? Boosting his prolactin? Getting breastfeeding going? Is that how to be Charles a real Darwin alpha? Says, uh, That's evolution. It's natural. That's so, natural. Yeah. <laughs>